0: BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts.
1: Wunderbar, wunderbar. 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 What a perfect night for love. We're alone and hand in glove. Oh, I like our love. It's wunderbar. I was singing Temple Tudor. Oh, wunderbar. 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 That one. Yeah, but that's not the original Wunderbar. No, I didn't I did realize that. Have we got all this Are we recording? <laughs> Comedy Gold. Comedy okay, that's gold. a relief. Cause... If it... what, a, what a relief that is it because is. Th- the harmony that was there <laughs> enmeshed in those opening few seconds of the program <laughs> is going to. We could do yeah. a musical. That tempo, Tudor thing was weird though. Was there anything else Germanic about it? it was just that chorus, Wunderbar, Wunderbar, Wunderbar. And that's all it did. But how did the rest of it go? I don't know. I don't know. That was their follow up to sort of that. Because he was. Oh. Hooray, 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 hooray. That was it. That was All that. Hoorah, hoorah, hoorah. Over the hills with the sun, a thousand men, and then. But the thing is, you could never tell what he was singing because he was me and I mean, that's the way they sang back in those days. That's the way Edward Tenpole, Edward Tudorpole, Tudor, Tudor, Edward Tudorpole was his actual name. That's right, he really was. He it was good at Tudor- Tudor- oh. Tudorpole. He threw a sandwich across the canteen. Rock of and roll. That Manchester, when he came to play at Manchester University. And now I may be sorely maligning him, but I have a memory of this that he was in the canteen and he was he was in a bit of a mardy about something and apparently threw a sandwich. It certainly became a, a story of popular legend. I, I think, think the day that Tenpole Tudor threw a sandwich across the Manchester University student canteen, there was a guy. Uh, he was related to him who worked at Radio One. Do you remember? No. Yeah, I need to check all this research out because. It, the thing is, he. Now, as far as I remember, but I may be wrong, he began as one of the people that stood in uh, after Johnny Rotten left the Sex Pistols when Julian Temple was making Great Rock and Roll Swindle. It's a swindle! It's a swindle! He's actually one of the people who, in that thing, anyone can be a, you know, anyone can be a Sex Pistol. And they've got a whole bunch of people, you know, standing in He's one of the people in that audition thing. And then, of course, he then did. He does Who Killed Bambi is him, isn't it? Who killed Bambi? Yeah, ter- k- sung terribly. Yeah. I mean, well, well, sang, sang terribly. How do you how would you sing Who Killed Bambi not terribly? Who killed, Bambi? Who killed Bambi. And and funnily enough, I was in a bar with Julian Temple just the other day. Yes. Just was the it Temple day. Bar? It wasn't. Okay. Sadly, we missed that fantastic opportunity. And I said to him, Julian. Yes. Remind me how that all happened. And because the story of that film is that originally there was this thing called Who Killed Bambi that was going to be directed by Russ Mayer. Russ Mayer and Julian... Wasn't he in Sparks? (laughs) Well, weirdly enough, I was also this week with Edgar Wright, who is currently completing work on a documentary about Sparks. Excellent, I look forward to that. not that. Julian Temple was the assistant he got himself a job as the assistant to Ross Mayer on the film that was going to be Who Killed Bambi on which the plugs were pulled after a couple of days because it was a total disaster and he then was the person who took over when it when all that cause some of that stuff was kind of put together to film to form the basis of Great Rock and Roll Swindle which then you know which Anything. it's a swindle it now. Anyway, check out the original. If all of this sounds like two really old guys just talking about old movies. That is what it is. But it is what it is. But 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 if you listen to the soundtrack of that movie, it is. They all. (laughs) It is exactly. (laughs) 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 It is what he sounds like. Can we find some of that? Can we do that at the end? At the end. If there's time, at the end, we could do some of that. There's a line in. Oh, this is. A little bit of underbar.
0: <laughs> Here we go!
1: Wunderbar, wunderbar, wunderbar! Hey, hey! Wunderbar, 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 And that's it. Repeat to fade. Repeat. Anyway, if we if there's time when we do the afterlife bit, we'll we'll add in the um. Anyway, to the there pres- is a, there is a line in Who Killed Bambi which sounds like birds of the air beef stroganoff it goes birds of the air beef stroganoff and i'm i'm sure that's not what it's saying but we'll it sounds like birds of the air beef stroganoff okay we'll give our top production team hannah a job there you go we want the lyrics of that song for sure. at <laughs> the end of the show anyway <clears throat> to business we've upset must we we oh, have, have we... gone. big upset time oh dear is it me or you You, primarily. Tom Jackson has been in in touch. Have I never said anything about Tom Jackson? Well. Have I? I am a new church member, says Tom, after being introduced to you by my brother. Okay, I am considering changing the status, made by a comment after Mark's comments about viola players (laughs) being useless. (laughs) And I'm not angry, but I think this view needs to be changed. Excuse me, can I just... As a viola and violin player, I can assure you that violas are like the mitochondria of a cell. Hello to fellow GCSE students. And are essential to the orchestra. They are responsible mainly for keeping the pulse, but also get the tune occasionally and don't show off. Okay, so that's fine, that's fine. And then here's the jibe. And don't show off the way the violins do and aren't quite as irrelevant as the brass section. (laughs) I just want to be clear, Tom, that it wasn't me who brought up the viola players. What happened was... I said, it's like jokes about drummers and bassists, because I'm a bassist, and so I'm the butt of those jokes, and the, the drummer in our band is the butt of those jokes, and you said, I think that's like the viola players in the string section, and I pointed out right. to you that a bass was a string instrument, yes. but so you had the, it wasn't me, sir, I was led astray by the treachery of others. Anyway, Society is to blame. Viola, you say, viola, I say, I'm not quite sure, maybe either or either are appropriate. Yeah, but I mean, the point is, I as somebody who themselves is on the receiving end of those jokes, I entirely appreciate that. I particularly appreciate the bit about not being as showy-offy as the violin players. Because let's face it, we've all seen violin players play. And it's like, yeah, c- come on. It's not that hard. Look at me. Look at look at me playing lo- lots around. of notes. Look at me Nigel what's his name anyway. with the hair and the chandelier hanging off his dinner jacket. Tom says, "Thank you for making homework less boring. I expect a written apology to the viola section, viola section very soon." <clears> well, I do it. Dear viola section, as a fellow sos babes. as a, sos babes, as a fellow butt of joke sufferer, I'm with you and my comrades in arms behind the drums or the timpani Stand with us. Um, <clears throat> Professor Carl Mayton, School of Social and Political Sciences, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, the University of Sydney. This has to be for you. Dear Salt and Pepper, attached is the cover of a very serious academic book using a sociological framework called Legitimation Code Theory or LCT. It was published today. let see. Here it is. Let's see. Okay. In reach. OK. me. Reached. That looks like the cover of Unknown Pleasures. It was published today. The book is a study of different kinds of knowledge in schooling and higher education. Also attached is page 308 of the index. This is okay. going to say you just do, don't you? Which, if you look under J, has a attainment related entry. The page number given... Yay! What does it say? It says Jason Isaacs, comma, hello to, 308... Interestingly enough, where is this from? Sydney. Yes, has the Australian or American spelling of hello. Well, you can't spell it. Is that the no? Australian? No, we do. We spell it hello. No, Simon, so you can spell. You No, you can't. No, no you can't. ha. No, or ha- no. Well, hello. No, the, the correct English spelling, with British, is hello. No English language is hello. Ha- but it's if you hello. if you hail someone, it's hello. It's yes a, ha. Yes, but it's that's a, a different uh thing. Sound. That's a it's a ha hu- sound. It's like Mary Poppins. With, View hello. Yes, but you don't do so that. Do you, Aussi- when you see somebody in the street, do you do it? You go, "Hello, but- ha ha!" I hail you by a good fellow. But do- so, hail it- fellow, well met." So, it's the Aussie version Hello. Well, no, but that's that's certainly how the Americans spell it. Isn't it? If you read an American book, it all says hello, but it, but it's we always say "Hello." I didn't know that it broke down. On a regional basis. I'm focus, assuming... Like it, a DVD regional... No, I'm right just... Assu- I'm making a wild assumption. C- could somebody look it up on the internet for me, whatever the, re- the answer for Anyway, Carl is. says... I'm just assuming... I'm both a colonial commoner, expat is brilliant. in Sydney, and the creator of LCT. I edited the book and may have had something to do with the index entry. Fantastic. Thanks, Prof. I think we should introduce a new sector which is called Hello to Jason Isaacs. Well, there's three. There's a. Have you said hello, hollow, or hello? "hollow"? And if you've only said hollow, you need to go back and do a hello. What's hollow? Hello? It's another way of spelling it. H U L L O. Correct. Like that. Hello. Is that right? hello. 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 You can spell hello three ways. That's the choice of vowels. Are you being given this in your headphones? Nope. I'm just telling you. Okay. So, you, so you're saying that you can, you can do it anyway. You can do hello, hello, and hello, and they're all the same. Correct. But uh, hello is conventional. Trad. Okay. I mean, that band that was on Top of the Pops in the 1970s weren't called hello. No, were they, were they called hello. Yeah. And that track by the beloved, I think, was hello also. And it wasn't Hello, hello, who's your lady friend? But if you're trying to be alternative and slightly hackney alternative, then you me? might go hollow. Just saying. Anyway, I want that to. It makes this. you sound vaguely sinister. Edwin, who's 28 years old, grade six oboe, Simon and Mark, following on from Mark's unjustly faded out rendition of the Internationale on last week's <laughs> show. <laughs> was it unjustly faded out? I finally oh. plucked up the courage to write an email I've been meaning to write for a while. I don't know if there are, I'm sure there are rules about podcasts, but anyway, I'm an MTL having listened to the show for most of the decade. I'm a communist of the, uh, quote, of the free development of each is the free development of all, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs variety, not the gulag lot, (laughs) says Edwin. Thanks for for clarifying. Who who I think in other circumstances (laughs) and other places are referred to as tankies. (laughs) Which I which I prefer. I haven't heard that phrase. Yeah, tankies. They're the they're the ones who. That's the section as, in, of the as left. in tank tops. No, as in tanks. I know, as fine. in the <laughs> tanks yeah. that come in and crush the revolution. <laughs> okay, sorry. I think it's a reference to you know when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. They with said their they tanks, said in people with tank tops. They'd have been inclined to go. You know what? Maybe the Russians have got a point. Yeah. They're the tankies. Okay, fine. Okay. okay. Anyway, he's not a tanky. He's a. He's, a, he's you know, the other one. He's a snowflake communist. And I got, I <laughs> Is got that to, the official, no, official phrase. I got into the show first through watching Mark's righteous review of the orgy of dripping wealth that was Sex in the City 2, which also famously featured a desk thumping rendition of the communist anthem. I wonder whether there are more church members who came to the show this way. I put money on it if I weren't in favour of the abolition of the wage system. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we can have our own communist corner That's of the church. Good. Although we might need several following the inevitable fallings out. Yours in comrade ship, um, Edwin. That's very good. It is, isn't it? I think that's all we've got time for before the show actually kicks in. The best version of the Internationale in film um, is that bit in... Can I ask for that? No, no I'm just saying, is it Air Force One when Gary Oldman is the is the mad Russian general who kidnaps the president or something, and he's while well, he's on the aeroplane, in order to demonstrate how madly Russian he is, they're playing the Internationale in Russian, which is very stirring, but it's kind of being used, I'm pretty sure it's Air Force One, I'll check it, it's being used as a sort of thing of, God, you know, he's really bad because he's listening to the Russian version of the Internationale at top volume before he kidnaps the American president. <laughs> Maybe he had to be there. Um, there may well be... Tankies. I oh, know. I'm trying to think of the tankies. Where, where did you hear the word tankies? Because um, you did politics at university, yeah, I which did. I mean, this is the great irony of this is you're the one who actually had. I mean, the joke is always, oh, marked political, blah, blah, blah. But you are much more educated than it's, I am. It, you remember when, oh, we were a bit off topic here, but you remember. This is fine. We're, no, we're no, this isn't an election it's issue. It's, for, it's foreign. It's, it's foreign. foreign and in the past. Solidarity, right? The Solidarnosc. Solidarnosc. In Poland. Yeah. Okay. There were There were some sections. Uh, of the far left who supported the the crushing of Solid and they would be considered tankies. Tankies. Yeah, no, I just hadn't heard the word before. Anyway, should we get on with the show before we get into trouble? If it, yeah, if it's absolutely required. It is. Here we okay. go. Hello and welcome to the programme and here we are in all our glory and Mark is, uh, is, is in all his glory and I'm in sort of... Not. All, it's kind of shabby chic. Shabby chic. It's addressed down Friday, Mark. Why don't you yeah, do think, a dress down Friday just once once in a while? Because, well, come because on, show a little bit of effort. Well, every now and then I come if I'm not doing the, the the broadcast afterwards, the television broadcast afterwards. I do, and then you and then you make a big thing about it. You go, oh, you're all shabby. Yeah, but I think shabby is good. No, but you don't say it like I think it's a good thing. You say like, oh, why aren't you? So you're not doing the telly today? Then there was a band, and I can't remember who they were, but our top production team will now look it up. Okay, and they did an album. Called Faded Seaside Glamour. Oh, that's a good title. It is. And it was a good album, but I can't remember who did it. But I thought, yeah, that's sort of us, really. Faded Seaside Glamour. Yeah, I think We're that's... like an old rickety wooden roller coaster. Yeah, I think what we have is FSG. We've got a little bit of. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, paint peeling on the beach hut. Yeah, I'd, 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 I'm happy to go for that. Yeah. The Daily Telegraph once described me as. A, a, a beach hut with the paint peeling on or something is it, like Is that what they said? Yeah, to which I thought... I've been called much worse things than that. Yeah. So I said, when, 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 that, when my Exorcist documentary, which incidentally is still on, Bf, uh, on BBC iPlayer, when it first aired in 1998, there was a review and it might even have been The Telegraph. God blimey, it's Mark Kermo. Look, talking about that movie the way he does. Didn't say that. It said, the scariest thing about this programme is that creepy guy who presents it. Well... No, I was doing an impression of the way you presented I know you were. I know you were. I know you were, you were leaping to get yeah. yeah, an... It's the exorcist, innit? Yeah, go. She devil comes in through the window. Now they've got to get the priest in, isn't it? Eh, hey, oh, he's... he's anyway, demon. Box Office Top 10 coming up. Edward Norton is our special guest. And I don't think... I've never interviewed him before. Can you remember him being on the show? Maybe when the stand-ins were doing the show? I don't think so. I been don't know. I don't think I've interviewed him either. Anyway... Edward Norton is coming up. Maybe David Morrissey interviewed him well, they would years have had, They gone gone would have had a ours. thespian conversation. They would. Since they are a both thesp fellow thespov. Thesp yes, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Anyway, an email from Neva Coates. Hello, Neva. I am a high school English teacher in Washington State. Great. And we have Thursday and Friday off, as in yesterday and today, because it's Friday. Thanksgiving we're due to, because we're giving thanks, followed by going shopping. So. What better, is. what better way to give thanks? Thursday is than giving thanks. Friday is going go shopping. shopping. So, beginning at ten this morning, I kept. Say, can just, I just ask, isn't it? You don't have anything to do with this Black Friday nonsense, do? Oh. You? It, you're poking uh, a wasp's nest. Okay, so the answer is no, right? Because the only point of yes, Black exactly. Friday is because you've had Thanksgiving Thursday, as it's not called. Yeah, exactly. And then it's the start of Christmas, but we just get the Black Friday bit, which is yeah, lunacy, absolute, it's madness. What is going on? (laughs) Why is life so complicated? Says the two peeling paint beach huts. Exactly. So beginning at 10 o'clock this morning, says Neva, I kept checking my podcast feed for your new episode to enjoy on my drive home because it feels like Friday. I checked after every class, but it never popped up. I I can't believe it's not Friday. I checked your website to see if it didn't air this week for some reason. Still, Chadwick Boseman. And then it hit me, Today is only Wednesday. I wonder if any of your other listeners across the pond thought the same as I did. Only two long, turkey-filled and malavoiding days to go. I, sh- I suppose I should have said maul, avoiding Oh, maul, yeah. Sorry, I would say mal like bad avoiding. That sounds like a like a Harry Sorry. Potter spell, doesn't it? Ah, mal-avoidance. Maleficardum. I think malavoid. he was in the class above. I oh, see. Yeah, had to avoid him. <laughs> anyway, um, that's from Niebuhr. Uh, coach, thank you. Thank but, you for that. I suppose there is, uh, it always gets very confusing when your week changes like that. Yeah, it does. Really confusing. Um, Richard Garnett. Um, Dear Helen the Damon and Ian, the night. five years ago on Christmas Eve, I was diagnosed with incurable cancer. It's called uh, mesoth- um, mesothelioma. Uh, from I got it from Asbestos, apparently from old theatres when I was an actor. The footlights giveth and the footlights taketh away, says Richard. No regrets. It was a wonderful time. I was given nine to 18 months, so it's somewhat of a miracle that I'm still around. Big thanks, of course, to your bad selves and your curmudgeonly companionship and conversation as I waded my way through chemo, two ops, radiotherapy, immunotherapy, more radio and now more immuno. Thanks also to my amazing medical team, my family and the love and support of our Cancer Club, which is a real club in a real corner of a real church, by the way. Our motto is, all shall be well, inspired not by Mark, but Julian of Norwich in the 14th century. If you read this out, please give a big what's up to Nick and Vicky, two incredibly brave new joiners. My reason for emailing is to ask you a question. For me, the last five years have shown that, and I quote, God grows roses up through manure. One of my roses is cinema. And the power of film to comfort and inspire to cut a long story short every six weeks I do a three-day water fast not prescribed but the science is new and compelling day two is always the hardest so instead of moping at home I took myself off to my local world of Sydney to watch four films back to back they were in sequence the good liar 21 bridges La Belle epoque and Harriet I started at 10 past 12 in the afternoon walked out quarter past 10 in the evening for the record Harriet is was the most moving and La Bella Epoque the most entertaining. Yeah. My question is this, for a non-critic, is this a record or has anyone else in the church seen five or six or more back-to-back in a cinema? Wow. I mean, before... I mean, you, this is a fairly standard fare for you to see yeah, four uh, in a day. Yeah, so well, for, yeah, Mondays and Tuesdays you do four, you do, you know, nine, eleven, one, three, and then sometimes five you do six, but... Um... And before I was a professional critic, uh, I used to go to horror all-nighters. Oh, yeah. Which would, you know, they would do... I mean, sometimes like they'd go from midnight till midday and you'd see six films back to back. And it was always really good fun. The Scala used to do very good all-nighters that would start about 10 o'clock and they'd go through, and you know, till, till five or six in the morning. And you'd come out five, or six in the morning, Kings Cross, and go and get you know breakfast in a cafe or something. And there was always that that kind of three o'clock in the morning slot when some people had fallen asleep through. It was a dodgy area it back was, in the day. It was, <laughs> but you um, wouldn't hang around outside for long <laughs> by them lockups. No, it was much safer in the Scala watching strange <laughs> horror movies. But um and the Scala cat, of course, which would... it was The Scala li- genuinely had a cat and it would crawl around the Scarlet and you'd be in the middle of watching some weirdy horror movie at three o'clock in the morning and the cat would jump on your head. But they needed the cat to keep the, so the rats and the mice down. We did all nighters at university. It was a film soccer. Oh, right, right. Okay, okay. OK. And you'd go... So how well, many would you see? Uh, I guess if you... but It would be rare to see more than four and that would take you to like four in the morning and yeah, then you'd yeah. go in for breakfast. Well, that, OK, so very interesting. I... I I bet you there is somebody out there who isn't a critic who has done the... But what the, a perfect way to spend a day if you want well, to distract brilliant. yourself absolutely from all brilliant kind of crazy stuff that Richard's going through. Yeah. Sit yourself in a, in a cinema. Yeah. No, it's perfect. And I mean, the, the best thing about it is it, it's a very particular pleasure watching a series of movies back to back. My daughter did this thing recently that she went to see a film and then she came out and she just on a whim went straight in to see another film and it's there is something about the you know the the, the cumulative thing of it it's yeah. it's it, to have a day in a cinema is a is a wonderful experience so uh, yeah so if anyone has done more than that you know done five or six and there has to be feature films, not five or six short films I think five so. or six I think features yeah. yeah anyway richard thanks for the email well, thank i wish you all the best um for all the for all the treatment that you're going through but thank you for listening and thank you very much for your email um it's a great, it's a great email before uh, box office top 10 and the lobby Correspondence coming up okay. I think you like this one um, it's from uh, Max from Berlin. I was reminded of the following nerve-wracking event by the old, by the Hello Lloyd from the show oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah, set yeah. of correspondents yeah. that one of your listeners experienced. So it's 1983, I was 12 years old, and the biggest James Bond fan... Evs. Correct. Normally, a well-behaved child, I got adventurous and skipped school on a Thursday, the classic premiere day for films in Germany, to catch the 11am showing of the rogue non-broccoli Bond film never say never again at my local kind of (laughs) multiplex. My misdeed of skipping school and the upcoming Bond movie had made me already very nervous. As the film started, not with the Bond theme, but some cheesy love song, there appeared my name. What I didn't say is this Max from Berlin is Max von Sydow. That's his name. No, it's not Max. So there appeared my name, Max von Sydow, in 10 metre wide red letters on the silver screen. I went straight into shock because I had absolutely no idea that I shared my name with a fantastic Swedish actor. That's astonishing. And as I knew that my name is not very common, I was totally confused. My heart was pounding. I looked around me, checking for other supernatural events. (laughs) Two explanations sprang to mind. One, a higher groundhog day-like power wanted to expose me in front of the whole world for skipping school. Two, I myself played a part in the movie... And had completely forgotten forgotten about about it. Not very likely in either case. (laughs) Finally, I ran out of the cinema to find my name was also on the poster. I didn't know what to make of the whole thing. It needed some discussion to get back in the cinema because the staff were all absolutely not impressed by me yelling, my name's on the poster! (laughs) I was allowed to sit through the film with my heart still beating at 11. Later, I confessed to my mother... uh, And I was ordered to look out for Bergman films with Max von Sydow in the TV programme because we had five channels. The next Max von Sydow movie I could catch was The Night Visitor. This Bond movie will always be special for me. My heart still beats faster if I see the title sequence. I like Brandauer Brandauer and Kim Basinger in it and I'm not convinced that the horse survived the jump from the castle in the sea. Tickety-tonk and down with old and new Nazis. Yours, Max von Sydow from Berlin. I'm writing this. In my blue sweater. But that, but so that makes him. That's amazing. But journey. how, how did, did he say how old he was when when he went to do this? Uh, yeah, um, twelve. He was twelve, and that was nineteen eighty three. Nineteen eighty three. So he was born in nineteen seventy one. And he'd so, never okay. heard of max No, Snell. no, but but so crucially, therefore, his parents, you know, the von Sidafs or the von sudorf as if the Swedish, um, will have known. I mean, that's like if you ha- if your name is Wayne and you call your son John. you you know that there's a John Wayne. You do. Or James Dean. But how amazing that that he never knew. Anyway, Max von Sydow, thank you very much for the email. I've I've interviewed Max von Sydow. Is this going to be a long story? Well, no, I interviewed him for my documentary, which is currently still on BBC iPlayer. still on on iPlayer? He's still on iPlayer. Still on Still on iPlayer. The scariest thing about it, creepy guy presents it. My accent. Uh, Uh, I said to him, I said, Oi, Max, why is it like I've been in that film? Box box Office Top 10. At 44, them, (laughs) them that follow. I really like this. I mean, it was a fairly small release, but it's a you know a film about people living within either call it religious sect or perhaps religious cult. Uh, I compared it to uh, to the Endless. It's got some very very strong performances, not least from Olivia Colman, who is good in everything. It's I, I I enjoyed this film. I thought it was. I always knew it was a sort of small release and a small audience, but it's worth seeking out if you get a chance. Uh, Adam in Salford, I've just been to see Them That Follow. Uh, my interest having been piqued by Mark's review, Them That follows a film that somehow manages to be both tightly wound and slow burning, a searing melodrama grounded by a solemn tone and terrific acting from an excellent cast. Very good. Mark mentioned that it reminded him of the similarly themed...
0: I found this on the web for melodrama grounded by solemn tone and terrific acting from an accident cast. Check it out.
1: What? <laughs> what, what, what was that? That was my phone interacting with with me, but I think that's a very bad thing. Are you serious? It was trying to find... It thought I was asking it to find something. That was the strangest thing. Evs. They're listening, you know. Well, in the case of your phone, they are listening. Mark mentioned that it reminded him of the simile themed The Endless, but it lacked the lighted touch of said film, instead bringing me to mind the superb Martha Marcy May Marlene, a film with which it shares much of its unsettling DNA. Overall, I thought it was an extremely accomplished and thoroughly engrossing film, and while, as Mark said, it won't be eight for everybody, I urge anyone with a passing interest in the subject matter to track it down. How interesting that that happened during a discussion of a film about religious cults who believe in weird snaky magic. (laughs) What's snaky magic? Well, they believe in snake magic. Oh. They, that that they they One of the ways they test their faith is by putting poisonous snakes around their neck, believing that their faith will prevent them from being bitten by the snakes. Right, and does it? No. No, okay, just checking. Uh, number 18 is in the top 10 countdown, La Belle Epoque. I think Before we have you... a... Yes, do you want to say?
0: I think we what have a think? lobby... Co-
1: say, say, say What? I think we have a lobby correspondent. Oh, we do, Richard Garnett just seen La Belle Epoque. What a wonderful movie. Beautiful, funny, sad, moving. And so, so wonderfully French. Is he a voiceover artist or no, what? I've just it done seen it. La Belle Epoque. Anyway, what are you doing now? <laughs> Would you like to come to the local hotel where I have, think I have a creme de menthe and a and a gita? I don't think I'm going to see that film about George Michael because that wouldn't be good for my image my name is Garnet Richard Garnet I've seen La Belle Époque so I wonderfully I, French I really loved La Belle Époque but I didn't sound anything like that sexy when I reviewed no. it Julian Punch is at 16 we're still not in the 10 yeah, I mean again a very interesting idea very strong performances it didn't quite have the magic that it needed to lift it to the next level but i um, mean it was it, it, all the elements were kind of in the right place it just ne- never quite gelled for me although there are individual things in it particularly the use of the puppet show which I think actually is very well done. Francesca says Mark and Simon during the 80s my dad was a street entertainer who while performing in Covent Garden befriended a Punch and Judy professor. Yeah because we asked about this about yeah. where does it actually come from. He and... explained that the show traditionally reflects political and social issues of the time which is why his version contained Judy venturing to her weekly bingo game and burning her bra although I enjoyed the film's kick-ass climax featuring a thing wielding or hmm yeah. rather than a hmm, I agree with Mark that Judy and Punch never found its feet after the central moment. Yes, perhaps because I was expecting something more dark and mystical. On the other hand, the film still had some good laughs, and I found that Damon Herriman's embodiment of the egotistical, abusive Punch made me feel uncomfortable to the point his very screen presence put me on edge. Yes, that, I think that's that's very well. Also, said. thanks to the costumes and sound editing, at times it felt more like being at the theatre rather than at the cinema. Although more along the lines of a good warm up for panto season. Thank you for keeping me company when ironing. Down with lying sausage eaters, and hello to Jason <laughs> Uh We're still not in the ten because Harriet is at 12. Which I liked. I mean, this is based on the true story of a slave-turned, uh, prominent abolitionist, Harriet Tubman. I think it's got a very, very strong central performance by um, Cynthia Revo. I think it's very well directed by Casey Lemons. It, it's, I think it's a shame that it has been somewhat overlooked by the press because I, I think it deserves a wider audience than it looks like it's getting if it's only gone in at number 10. How many screens was it playing on? hundred and ninety one screens, so oh no, no, beg your pardon. No hundred and eighty screens. So I think it should it done better. I, th- I th- yes, I think it I think it wasn't given the attention it deserved. Okay. Uh, so Harris at twelve. Uh, number ten, Sean the Sheep movie, Farm Again. I think we've kind of yeah loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Yeah, not crazy Nine. about it, despite the fact that the way you say the word maleficent. The Adam's family is at eight. Still haven't. And Good I, liar is at seven. Yeah. Joker is at six. Are we oh we're romping through these. Okay, fine. Joker, much to be said on both sides, but I liked it. Twenty One Bridges is at five. I thought this was a good, solidly done A-list B picture. Uh, again, I saw some sniffy reviews of it, but in much the same way as Black and Blue, I thought the efficiency with which it told its—you know—it is—it's absolutely a, a B movie plot. The crime happens, they shut down Manhattan, they close the Twenty One Bridges. They've got a time frame they have to work to. The message you can only have until five o'clock, and then blah 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 blah. And I thought they do it they'd do it quite well, although the dialogue is super ripe. And there is an awful lot of scenery chewing by the cast, but that's kind of in keeping with the tone of the film. Um, The splendidly named Jacob Hirschkorn. Hi, I'm Jacob Hirschkorn. I'd just like to tell you what I think. (laughs) Anyway, is he's, that how you imagine Jacob's voice? Yes, exactly. Anyway, he signs off. Overall, I was thoroughly disappointed. The film oh. ended up developing into cheap action scene after cheap action scene with every shot fired by the protagonist hitting his opponent squarely between the eyes, whereas hundreds of other highly trained officers could not aim if their lives depended on it, which is something I think we've seen in quite a few films yes, that is. over the years. Various points in the film, the music would swell, indicating that it was a moment of tension, but I was left feeling no adrenaline fueled fear. Um, at all, anyway, uh, disappointed, etc., etc., etc. But however, you're wrong. And Mark and I liked it, so yeah, that's there the we go. That. Uh, *Lemon* 66 is it number four. Really good fun, and I didn't know that particular story. I thought there was a lot of uh, joy to be had in the relationship between the two characters. Everyone's talked about Christian Bale. I think Matt Damon carries the movie. I think he he has the slightly more difficult part because the Matt Damon the, the Matt Damon role is the weirdly the kind of the slightly less sympathetic one he's the way in but you're meant to sort of absolutely look at the christian bell character at the center i thought it was really good though so a couple of interesting points here one is from giles brown uh my father raced at le mans in 1969 there's a glimpse of steve mcqueen standing by my dad's car during the recce for his le mans film the following year in mcqueen the man and le mans film a few years ago. My dad took me to see Le Mans when I was a kid. He was also team manager at Le Mans in 1973. As a small boy, some of my earliest memories are of walking around the paddock and sitting in motorhomes at race meetings, so as soon as I saw the trailers for Le Mans 66, it was obvious that I had to see this film with my dad. I've lived in Marbella on and off since the mid-80s and can confirm that we're not all orange, cosmetically enhanced, have the IQ of less than your average tapper and never call this rather beautiful place Marbs. We don't say that. Mobs. So when I saw your uh, our local multi-screen cinema in Puerto Banos was showing Le Mans 66, we decided that this would be a perfect father and son experience, much as your father did. Yeah. Kind of thing. We took in a 5pm showing on a Wednesday with only eight other people in the cinema. The first sound of the cars echoing around, I got that tingle of excitement that I used to get as a 10-year-old at the circuits. I'm an avowed petrol head. I love the film. Chatting to Dad on the way back to the car. It too is a Ford, though alas of the Focus rather than the GT40 (laughs) variety. He also said it had been better than he'd expected and they had got some of the period detail right, especially the open pit lane where mechanics would change wheels while other cars flew past at 150 miles an hour. Wow. And he also remembered thundering down the fearsome Mulsanne Strait. My dad raced long distance sports cars in the 60s and 70s at a time when racing was extremely dangerous and he lost many of his friends before retiring after his first race in a Ferrari in 73. As a small boy growing up with a racing father, the film struck a and I found myself having a curmode moment, as it's known, after saying goodbye to my dad and sitting alone in the car. It was an absolutely perfect petrolhead dad and lad movie. Thank you, Giles. And Deb Green in Loughborough. Yeah. A nasty cold meant that I could spend the weekend catching up with your podcast whilst being very brave at home. This, as ever, was very entertaining until I got to the podcast on the 15th of Nov when you played a clip of Christian Bale from Ford v Ferrari. What accent is that, you asked Simon, to which Simon said it sounded like East Midlands, Leicester, Nottingham or Derby. What? Well, I should have shouted, but I, it was more of a gargled croak because I was poorly. I'm afraid you have accidentally meandered up my hill. Oh dear. An East Midlands accent, I mean, I have to... Okay. Is it a hill, a hill upon which you're about in, to die? A, an East Midlands accent is nothing like a West Midlands accent, something that I know very well, but I'll explain in just a moment. Yeah. OK, so neither was Christian Bale, really, in most of the clips I've seen. But in that clip, he was clearly attempting a nasally West Midlands accent. Yeah. East Midlands is closer to a soft Yorkshire than West Midlands, particularly the tendency to put E on the end of vowels instead of E. So the excellent right. footballer, J. Mervade, and Leicester legends Kasabian are known to chant um, uh, known to chant E. Time and time again, film and television depict Leicester accents to be like the West Midlands. And each time I absolutely have. No one to correct until now. I did have the opportunity in the summer to congratulate the great and lovely Jason Isaacs on not being brummy for a Leicester accent in an audiobook that he did. However, the confused look he gave me, in fact, that nearly every other character had a Yorkshire accent, did make me think for a brief moment it was a fluke. So spread the word. East Midlands is not the same as West Midlands, although both are pretty awesome. Uh, and aeot miduk to Jason... Anyway, I should say, I lived in Nottingham for four years, so I know very yes. well what an East Midlands accent sounds like. Yeah. And so that's why, I, when I listened to that clip, I thought that's what it sounded like. And, but I should say that I, and when you said, is that what that is, I said, well, actually, technically technically West Midlands, because that's where it's, where it's meant to be. Although the, fa- the fact of the matter is that Christian Bale's accent does go on a large walking tour of the district. yes, And it crosses several boundaries during a very few sentences. In a way that, I mean, I, I, one of the things I said in my review was, that it's a testament to how well the film works that Christian Bale's wandering accent doesn't put me off. I just kind of thought, that's fine. Uh, last Christmas is at number two, and I think we've... I mean, I have got some correspondence, but I'm aware that... OK, we're not going to talk about got... Blue Story? Oh, but I do beg your pardon, my mistake. Le is at number four, Yeah, Blue Story is at number three. My apologies. OK, so Blue Story came out last week, and you'll, probably, you'll know, you will have read all the reports, that, you know, the allegations of disturbances in cinemas, and then it being pulled by a cinema chain... And then the cinema sort of pretty quickly being accused of racism for doing that. And then uh, the cinema changing their minds. And now it it appears to be back in in cinemas. So I saw the film uh, last week before any of this stuff broke. I mean, my own feeling was it wasn't for me and I wasn't crazy about it. But the one thing I did think was that there is no suggestion, I don't think there's any suggestion by anybody, that the film is anything other than a condemnation of, uh, of of violence. And particularly, I mean, it's a very sort of straightforward, well-known story. Two people who know each other, grow up together, and then are torn apart by the postcode of where they live, and therefore rival gangs become involved, and they are set against each other. And... For me, I found the I found the film a little bit on the nose, but it already had. Uh, I mean, the, the, the director Ratman had had this huge success on YouTube, and I'm very, very aware that the film is not aimed at me, and I my surprise at what happened. Was because the film is very clear. The film is absolutely a film which says violence is a bad thing, and talk and clearly it's appealing to um to a you know very very uh, widespread audience, and it absolutely is very clear in its message. Its message is violence is a bad thing, and it needs something that needs to be dealt with. Uh, Dave McMillan, I saw uh, your this film last Friday morning and found it quite affecting. There were audible gasps and at appropriate times sobs from members of the audience I watched it with and I thought it did a good job of highlighting the issues that boroughs of London are up against that may not be fully understood around the rest of the country. This is not a story of gangland violence that headlines may have led you to believe this week. Instead, no, it is a story of how even the most innocent and good kids may be dragged into a world they are desperate to escape. Yeah, I think exactly so. So last Christmas is 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 it number two, and I think we've it's, we've sort of done with that. I mean, we, yeah, we, I mean it it has done well. It's found an audience. Although it has been now knocked off it off the top spot by Frozen Two, which is kind of unsurprising, but it's done pretty well. It's dropped fifteen percent. So you know, it's found an audience, but it's not a runaway hit. No, but on the one hand, one star reviews. On the other hand, it was a number one film. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad we put in all the caveats that we. That yeah, we yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, and but but we we said at the time. It, you know, it is very likely that it will find an audience. I, st- all the pro- I, st- all the problems that I have with it still stand. Okay. So, uh, this is uh, Five Live. a little bit of Wittertainment on a Friday afternoon. Uh, coming up, Ed Norton, Edward Norton, Edward, Edward Norton. You've got to stop doing it. Coming that. up because it's motherless Brooklyn time. But we, in, in, we were just going on, uh, so aimlessly for a mm. while that we didn't get to Frozen, Frozen two, two. which is the UK's number, number one, one movie. James, Ella, and Pippa in Norwich. My wife and I have just got home from a Saturday morning screening of Frozen 2 at a packed view in Norwich. It was our three-year-old Pippa's first feature-length cinema outing and as a big fan of the first instalment, her anticipation was palpable. I wanted to send through a lobby correspondent recording so Pippa could tell you what she thought, but when the film finished, her tears started. Cuddling up to Mum, she just said, I just love Frozen. I just love Frozen. Oh. I just love Frozen. All three of us thought the film was superb and, dare I say, even better than the first. The story was excellent with a, th- a theme I could compare with Pocahontas and Moana and the new songs were just as mesmerising in places. I'm already planning when to go again to placate my daughter's adrenaline come down. It's a morning I'll remember for a long, long time and the experience I hoped it would be. Au contraire, says Matt oh, Gibbons. Au contraire. Uh, <laughs> I bet he doesn't say that. I've just got home after taking my eight-year-old daughter, Autumn, to see Frozen 2. Autumn has been excited for weeks about seeing this film as she loved Frozen. I think I must have seen it 643 times as it was on constant repeat when we first got it on DVD. Considering the first film was so good, it was a shock to find the same cast, director and writers could stray so far in this sequel. The plot is now so complex that for the entire drive home, Autumn was asking me why certain things happened and the problem was I couldn't tell her as <laughs> nothing in the plot seemed to hang together or make any coherent sense. Frozen was a film filled with joy, fun and catchy songs and all these are missing from Frozen 2. The film is overly dark and downright miserable in places. Uh, Autumn is an avid cinema goer, uh, and normally when we come out of a film, she will ask when it will be out on DVD and can we buy it. It speaks volumes that when we came out of the cinema today, she told me she did not want to watch that film again. It, it, I mean, that is definitely on the one hand this, and it on is, the other hand, yes. that. I mean, I, I was, I was kind of lukewarm about it, uh, which is not a frozen pun. I didn't think it was terrible by any means, but I, I just, I thought there would. Be, it, it, it lacked a certain spark for me, but uh, it is interesting that some people have had such a you know such a powerful response to it but on both sides. Do we have a lobby correspondent? I think we do. Uh, here's Claire Dugan and daughter. It was great. And I thought it was great too. Over and out, chaps. No, that is succinct. That's, yeah, exactly. Do that again. I mean, that is so perfect. That we can play that twice. What do we want from a lobby correspondent? Brevity. Well, we something like this.
0: It was great.
1: And I thought it was great too. Over and out, chaps. OK. Thank you you see, Claire. that's it. You can go... That's you can. It. That's four that's seconds. That's how you do it. You can do eight seconds if you want. Yeah, but in a way, that's not just four seconds. That's two voices in four seconds and we know exactly what they thought of the film. We do. It's just that captured the, the moment. OK. So uh, if you want to get in touch, it's mayo at bbc.co.uk. You, UK. as a professional broadcaster, would have struggled to top that. I don't think I would have been able to top that. No, exactly. I'd have said, I think this. What do you think, Mark? And you said, I agree with Simon. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. So let's talk about Motherless Brooklyn, which stars Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Uh, You're going to hear from uh, Edward in just a moment after this clip, which also involves the extraordinary Willem Dafoe. Hey, uh, excuse me. Uh, Could I get a slice of cheesecake? Could you make it one?
0: I'd like it one. Half of the city is getting a ride on one of his horses. For God's sakes, he controls everything. Construction job in the city. He said they just created the position. No, construction, slums, parks. He's got 14 appointments. It's all just ink on a glass door. None of it matters. It's all B.A. B.A. Borough Authority. You you call yourself a reporter on what? The arts beat? Beat parts. You read Emerson? Uh, Should I? Yeah, you should. All right. Emerson said that an institution
1: is the length and shadow of one man. This town is run by the Borough Authority, and the Borough Authority is Moses Randolph. And that's a clip from Motherless Brooklyn. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its writer, its director, its star and its producer, which fortunately for us is all one person, which is uh, Edward Norton. Hello, Edward. How are you? Good to be here. Thank you very much, Steve, for your time. Uh, have you ever done all those things before? I know you've directed before, but have you ever ever worked quite so hard on a project um, as this one?
0: <laughs> My first film that I directed, I did all, all those roles. I don't want to say it was an easier film. No film is easy, but um, it was lighter, lighter in tone, and it was contemporary. So, And we made it in New York like this one. <laughs> but ironically, we had more money and more time. You could point the camera anywhere because we were... Shooting the contemporary city. When you, this one was a much more multi-dimensional puzzle, and the role was a lot more difficult.
1: So let's just explain the story. So you and, and start at
0: the beginning. When did you read the book? It came out in '99, so maybe I read it in late '98 or something like that. Um, I feel like we were wrapping up Fight Club, which would have meant it was the end of '98, and before I was directing my own film. Because when I read it and really was quite drawn to the character, the central character of it, I think I said to the author, Jonathan, that I was heading into directing a film and had a couple of commitments beyond that and that I wouldn't be able to get to it for a while. But it's a, it's in that zone of about 20 years ago that I read it. So when you said it might not get to it for a while, that was kind of true. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah. But the impact that it had on you, I mean, I think you've you've likened it to reading Catcher in the Rye. Can you explain why it had that?
0: Well, when I said that, what I mean is that all books, all films, even songs, what everyone tries to do is set a hook early, grab you and pull you in and hold you there, right? You know, the brilliant thing about Catcher in the Rye is that he tells you his own story and Holden Caulfield narrates the story to you and your affection for him comes from the intimacy of his sharing. And that's how Motherless Brooklyn commences, and that's how it works. He literally says, let me explain to you the uniqueness of my crazy brain, and then you can ride with me and watch me trip myself up and have to navigate it. And it's it's funny, it's poignant, it's all these things. But by the end of page two, you're just hooked. You've never met anyone like this. I thought, forget the fact that it's just a great challenge for an actor it's just what we try to do in films is is create a character that you root for quickly the thing that struck me more than anything was that it was like like a Forrest Gump or a Rain Man what they engender is empathy for an underdog i think films that that um remind an audience that it feels good to to root for someone who is being diminished by other people, is it's sort of who they want to be. The audience feels uplifted by cheering for that character. Tell us
1: about Lionel then. Why was he such a, such a hook for you? What's And what is going on in his
0: brain? Well, he has Tourette's syndrome, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. He works for a detective. You could call him a detective, but in truth he works for the detective. The Bogart-like detective is his boss, and he is kind of an operative for this guy who appreciates his unique gifts that come with his condition. They've known each other since he was a boy. He's an orphan who's found a place under the wing of this street-smart Brooklyn detective. And when his boss, who's really his mentor and only friend, is killed in a dark dealing, and Lionel feels in some ways that he messed up and failed to step in and and stop it, he's driven by his grief and desire for revenge and desire to figure out what went on um, into trying to solve the the mystery of how this much, this murder, and how much
1: of a challenge was he as a character to, to I was going to say to get your head around, but you know, literally in this,
0: in um, this case, you know, you know, whenever you have a well written character in a novel, you're way ahead of the game, right? The core of the whole novel is this portrait of the mind and the the mechanisms of his Tourette's. Now that doesn't Reading a thing and doing a thing are very different. I would say the research is a process of doing literally what you're doing with me right now. That's all you have to do as an actor to invent you talk to people and you you read about a thing and you watch documentaries about people with Tourettes and and you touch talk to them. The absorbing of information about a thing is not difficult. the translating that into a thing that you can um have happening in your own body fluidly without self-consciousness in a way like you know a basketball player doesn't think about each shot it's a muscle memory it's a an instinct and i think you've got to get it to there and that's almost it's like Malcolm Gladwell's book you know about 10 you know you need 10,000 10, hours, hours yeah. it's it's that it's that idea it's it is honestly just about the work of rehearsing and going through that phase where it all feels inauthentic and like you're faking it and getting into a groove you're playing the instrument without really having to think about the notes in yeah. a
1: way. Yeah. So he I mean we all have crazy stuff going on in our heads. It's just that he says His it. His becomes the time. external.
0: I like that you said that. That I I I have often said the thing about a heightened condition is it seems exotic, but that's not the actuality. What you said is truer. What's truer is it's much more like everybody than one would initially think because we all have an anarchist living in our heads. The, he wants the cookie. He wants the the next cigarette. Wants a drink. W- wants to behave inappropriately. And we have another part of our head that says no, and that 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 argument is going on in all of us all the time um, about things big and small. We 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 review ourselves. We critique ourselves. We limit ourselves. We fight back against it, and we think things about people. We hear things, and our mind does something funny with them, but we just don't say it. We don't externalize it. And the only difference in Tourette's, I think, is that it becomes externalized. And it's part of the reason Lionel is easy to empathize with because you you look and you feel like, thank God I'm on this side of the line because if what was in my head was coming out, I'd be in trouble too. You can smile at that. You can laugh uh, with it and not at it. And I think that's the key to empathy.
1: Can you just explain a little bit about the story, particularly with regard to Alec Baldwin's character? This guy Moses Randolph is an extraordinary piece of work and based on a real guy. So just can yes, you do, and a and a be a, a story so that new to most people our in this mystery country.
0: It takes place in the late fifties in New York, and as Lionel tries to solve the puzzle of what has happened to his mentor, he starts to wander deep into the shadowy machinations of of a New York political boss, someone who seems to be nothing but the commissioner of parks, a a modest appointed bureaucrat who the more he digs, the more he begins to sense and be told that this guy is actually the supreme power broker of all of New York City and New York State, like an imperial autocrat who rules the city with an almost totalitarian imperial style and, and with uncontested authority. And he, as we would... Is mystified by this. It, it does none of it makes sense. And and as he digs and digs and digs, he he learns more and more about this person who is inspired by someone who who in fact in New York was kind of the Darth Vader of New York in the 20th century. He was a brilliant visionary and very dark figure who hijacked democratic government in New York and became truly like almost like a Roman Caesar. He. He had such uncontested um, power in New York for nearly 50 years that a great deal of what happened in terms of turning New York into a modern city was by his uh, whim.
1: In our remaining three minutes, I think, uh, there are two things I want to mention. One is Gugu and Barterot, who we followed since 2013 when Bell came out, which Mm -hmm. I thought was a fantastic film, but also the soundtrack and the importance of jazz. Uh, and Winter Masalis and Tom York. And and also, not just because it's there as part of the 50s New York, but also the effect that it has on Lionel.
0: Yeah. Because he reacts physically to the music. Okay, so lightning round. um, Gugu, I have had my eye on her, like Lionel, following Laura. Like She has seemed mysterious and compelling. Her work has been really great. And I felt she was a perfect fit. She's actually the only actor I brought into this who is not sort of a a New York theater actor that I have a deep history with. But I think it's wonderful when an audience's experience of a character is the same as the main character. So in other words, Lionel's reaching for this person. She's mysterious. He's trying to find out who she is. She's sort of the woman of mystery, central figure in the story. But he doesn't know who she is and we don't either. And I like the idea that the audience doesn't know too much about this actress, that it's not someone so well known that there isn't a lot of mystery left. I've seen enough of Gugu's work to know how brilliant she is, but that the audience can still discover her. Um, and I think they do in this. Um, she's quite luminous and it's a beautifully sensitive uh, performance.
1: Were you in charge of casting as well?
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> of course. you yeah. okay. And I, that's a nice segue into, you know, the nicest thing, about directing has lots of problems. Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock's line that... Uh, Directing is like getting pecked to death by a thousand pigeons. It still re- remains true. Everything comes to you and it, it becomes, like I said, a, an impossibly complex puzzle. But the reward is that you get to ring up the people that, whose work you admire and bring them into your sandbox to play with you. And calling Tom York and calling Winton Marsalis and great actors like Willem Dafoe and Alec Baldwin and Michael K. Williams, who I, it's a career ambition of mine to work with someone like Willem Dafoe and, and directing. Someone who was an idol of mine when I came into the New York theater and had the kind of career that Phil Hoffman and Bobby Cannavale and Mark Ruffalo and I, who were all in the New York theater making our way, we all wanted a career like Willem Dafoe. Like, to work with Tom, who I think is one of the great songwriters of my generation, um, and have him write a ballad, a mournful ballad that feels like it's come out of the past— is just the you know these this is and about the daily
1: struggles, which are, again, yes, re- taking back to everybody's experience about what it's like every day. We have this
0: stuff going on. If you if there's anybody who's you know literally captured the zeitgeist, captured the melancholy and the fear in the of living in the modern world and feeling lonely and feeling longing, he, it's him. You know, he's I've teased him that he's the Billy Holiday of our generation. You know what I mean? And but that's <laughs> but I'm not even joking because in a way. I didn't want to use a Billie Holiday track because then you're just going into sort of the romantic cliche of the past instead of creating something that's vital and new in its own right and has its own original voicing, you know. Uh, but we talked about the kinds of things that she sang that had a political dimension, like the song Strange Fruit, which is melancholy, but also it's about a time living in a time where people are lynching other people, you know what I mean? And I think what he wrote in Daily Battles... It has personal heartache and longing in it, but it also has, you know, he talks about dark power, about knowing, feeling that the other side has no face. You can't win this argument. These words are in the song, and they, he wrote it early enough that it reflected back to me, and I, the other side has no face was a line, it, it made me shoot out the introduction to Alec Baldwin's character so that you can 't see him, you sense his presence, you, you but you literally can 't see his face, and you come to realize whoever this faceless person is in the shadows he 's obviously more powerful than the mayor who's being inaugurated in front of us. I hope that the film does what my favorite films do, which is it 's a sensual experience, it creates a hypnosis. you know if an audience enters into a film and the total weight of the cinematography and the music and the and the performances pull them into like a happy sense of pleasure at being there, then you can tell them a story, you can tell them any story you want. And I think that's how a lot of my favorite films function and that's that's what we tried to pull off.
1: Edward Norton, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. As we said Quite a few times on the program over the years, my favourite interviews are the ones where someone is so intimately involved and invested yeah. in the success of the film, and clearly, Ed Norton is like he is the film, <laughs> is. and you can tell from the passionate way in which he's answering the question. Now, you haven't seen the film, yet. no, in, but on, the, ba- on the basis of that interview, I'm really, I really want to see it now. It comes out next week, and uh, and you'll review it yeah. next week. But he's just—it was another example of the Chadwick Boseman thing, where you know you just tease a little question towards the end, and he's just—he just wants to tell you, yeah. "I've got so much to say about." Gugu Mbara to Raw or about Alec Baldwin or so about it was Tom when he, York. When he said that thing, when he quoted the Hitchcock thing, but he said, but one of the great things about directing is that you get to cast, you get to work with these people that you really wanted yeah. to work with. And he, yeah. and he called Tom York and he called Winter Salas. Yeah. Anyway, so that comes out next week and you'll review it next week. So yeah. give us a few new things. Okay, so Shooting the Mafia is a documentary by Kim mm-hmm. Longinotto who, um, whose work I really like. It's uh, about photographer that Batalia. Battaglia. Longinotto made Love is All. Remember that documentary, that sort of collection of film clips that came out on Valentine's Day and had music by Richard Hawley. She made Divorce Iranian Styles. Very, very fine filmmaker. Anyway, so Leticia Battaglia, who um, talks about discovering herself through her camera, finding out who she is by taking photographs and showing the world what she sees, becomes the first, one of the first, the first uh, female photographer working on the national newspaper, but also finds herself in the front line of reporting on the mafia, as the title suggests. She talks about the first time she photographed um the aftermath of a mafia attack the shock of seeing a, a body violently killed the first of many and says you know that that, you, that experience lives with you and haunts you and what she does is that she documents the everyday violence of the mafia including the killing of children and her photographs start to become a thorn in the establishment side because they're a constant reminder of the cost Of this kind of organised crime, which is just everyone's just living with. At one point, she takes her photographs to uh, to Corleone, to the town of Corleone, and they display them on the streets. They think she's constantly putting herself in dangerous positions. She talks of the danger of photographing at funerals, where people at funerals don't want to be photographed. They don't want their faces seen in the newspaper. She talks about the cruelty in the eyes of mafia boss who she photographed he was particularly outraged that he was being photographed by a woman and the documentary follows the way the tide turns and leads towards the kind of um the grand trials of the mafiosi and and, and what followed but crucially and despite the, the the title of the documentary it's not just about that it's also about her about her personal evolution we hear about her life about her relationships both past and present we meet old acquaintances and lovers who talk of her extraordinary uh, beauty and the power of her presence and her vivacity and her life force and her independence. She's somebody who, at a fairly repressive time, lived her life her way. It's funny, at certain points of the documentary, she reminded me of Angus Varda. she, She cuts a real... Uh, impressive presence on screen as and so as much as this is a documentary about the horrors that are documented very passionately in her photographs it is as much a celebration of a life lived in defiance of rules of a life lived by somebody who was determined to live their own way and express themselves their own way and i th- found that was the most powerful thing about it should also say this week also sees the reissue of Eyes Wide Shut, which is 20 years old. It is not, is it? <laughs> it is. Stanley Kubrick's final film, um, uh, d- described variously erotic mystery psycho thriller based on Arthur Schnitzler's trauma Novel, which is a short story that's based on. So Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are this very beautiful couple, but there is a worm at the heart of their relationship. One evening, she reveals to him that contrary to his beliefs, women have fantasies too. And she says that at one point she saw a naval officer and she almost left him just because she was so powerfully moved by this naval officer. And he's so discombobulated that he goes off into the night and he winds up at some hugely theatrical grand orgy where he spectacularly fails to find satisfaction despite saying the magic word for Dalio to a man dressed as a chicken. Now, when the film came out... exactly. Is it real? We've is it a dream? It's a Trom novelle. It's a dream novel. And when it came out, the, the the audiences were split two ways. On the one hand, there were the Kubricker files who said, Oh, you know, very serious. You know, Think about a marriage, blah, blah, blah. can't call it an erotic thriller. Um, on the other hand, there were the people who knew anything about erotic thrillers, and it is an erotic thriller, so it's not a very good one. Um, in the same way that, you know, the the shining, it's not a horror movie or the thousand well, not really science fiction movie. Yes, they are, but They are somebody attempting to, in inverted commas, reinvent the genre. I watched it again. I confess I didn't go and see it again in the cinema. I watched it again on DVD. And I have to say that even on third viewing, it looks like something that Greg Dark would have said, you know, you need to cut 50 minutes out of that at least – um, it is the guy. Who Greg Dark is? Greg Dark is the straight-to-video erotic thriller king who made, you know, Night Rhythms and all those films that kind of came to define the straight-to-video erotic thriller. Right. You know, also Alexander Gregory Hippolyte, Gregory Brown, under many different uh, names. And I think the big problem with Eyes Wide Shut is two things. Firstly, it's a demonstration. If somebody is allowed to do whatever they want, they often don't do their very best work because Kubrick had complete control over the project. There are flashes of brilliance. I love the use of Justin Pook's music, and I know you're a fan. Of her stuff as well, but I still think that the grand orgy sequence looks like an outtake from To The Devil a Daughter. I still think there's something, it's a strange mixture of, of weird coyness about it. That in the middle of this kind of grand, you know, obviously, yeah, you can. It's a one in which people keep their pants on, a koichi, a koichi. It's exactly like that, and um, it, it's you know, it's overcooked and overheated and very full of its own. The people who defend it think that it's absolutely a portrait of the intense you know relationship at the heart of a marriage and and the people like me who are less impressed go it's, it's it's a film made by somebody who is not fully at the height of their powers because they've kind of been allowed to do anything and it's a passion project and I mean I look I'm a great admirer of Stanley Kubrick's but there are films of Stanley Kubrick's that I like and films of Stanley Kubrick's that leave me cold. And I have to say, I think it's his worst film. And it's there's a great reassessment of it happening at the moment. There is a very fine piece written in sight and sound defending it. I still think it's an overblown erotic thriller with some famous people in it and the silliest orgy sequence I've ever seen. And believe me, I've seen a few. Have you? I've never seen any. <laughs> What's been the best one? Just out of interest, what's the best orgy? The you've best ever, orgy you've ever been to? Or, I no, mean, I've never seen. been to no, one. Oh, sorry, sorry, see. Yeah, thank you see, very much. Which one? Of the, what's the best best orgy sequence? <laughs> there is top three. Okay, there is a very funny, uh, I mean, but i no probably deliberately funny a funny orgy sequence in Animal Instincts Three. Okay, can't say it's uh, it's uh, front yeah. and center. There okay. is there is a, there's also a sort of mini orgy thing in Night Rhythms. What's a mini orgy? Three people. Oh, okay, there are other words yeah, that. I know, I know, but it's... Anything else? <laughs> it's a family project. It's a short list. Those are the ones that come to mind. Okay, as it were. So, uh... <laughs> whoa, <Well, laughs> there's one in um, the more. in the very first Tom, Tom Hanks movie, Bachelor Party. What was there? Yeah, although the whole point is that it's, you know... I'm hoping Tom... What? It's what? The whole point is that it doesn't happen. That, oh, okay, because yeah, Tom's going to be on the show again yeah. soon, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah I, in fact, he was very... Stand up about it, because I once said, are you embarrassed by Bachelor Party? He said, no, I'm not embarrassed by it. Excellent. Uh, yes, so Tom Hanks on the show very shortly. Anyway, Excellent. we're going to take a break for obvious reasons. So here we go, and uh, we're continuing for another hour or something like that, and during that break, we were just... We were, Monte, you were taunting me. We were, we were, because we were talking about the, uh, the new... The Lighthouse. Robert Pattinson, uh, Willem Dafoe, who we heard in that clip earlier in the Ed Norton... Yeah, with his his incredible And he has voice. such a distinctive... Voice and in Lighthouse, which you're, which you've yet to see. Yes, I have yet to see it. You his... started, and you st- started literally having a conversation about what the end shot of it meant. Yes, and, and I had to go. Do you mind? Well, the key thing to bear in mind is when the Christenberg music swells. Swells. <laughs> that's 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 the significant. It's a spaceman came calling, isn't it? A spaceman came traveling. Came traveling. Which every time it comes on, I find. I find the urge to kind of uh, what's the word? A uh, vomit. I think that's the. Uh, <laughs> okay. The problem the with that way. is that when uh, one of yeah well one of my children did a there was a when they were in primary school when they were very very young danced around as an angel to that song in a school production so i'm sorry that for me despite the fact that i understand that on every level it's sandpaper to the ears it just reduces me to tears because i have a personal affiliation from it now of seeing one of my children dressed as an angel <laughs> well <clears throat> you, at least you're prepared that in that a very when it surprising comes, when it comes, moment yes. in the lighthouse, the Christabel music. I knew the lady in red turns up in it. Yes, I wasn't sure. About yeah, that's that a, that, that, is, that is quite a moment. Okay. Um, so anyway, so look forward. Also, the other thing that you have to bear in mind when you do see it is where does Willem Dafoe come from? Yes, that's the other question. Yes, I have heard that, that that his accent is a little a wandering. Yes, that, that's true. I think it comes. I think he lives in Truro, <laughs> County Tipperary. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where I'm placing it on my. So he's Cornish. irish he's... Yeah, That's right, yeah. <laughs> um uh, who's this? Nicola Bailey, dear charming but aimless and deadpan tug. Very good. In the this is a reference to the New York Times. The New York Times. Let's just mention that again because yeah. the New York Times said they that chose we were us. in the top 7 bizarre to be in the We top were the top seven. of the 7. Were we top of the seven? Anyway, well, let's no, I, in, think in my that. mind, we were in the most the most important film podcasts. Yes, uh, to be listened to globally. Yes, we welcome all our new American listeners. Mightn't yep, we do? It, but anyway, uh, because of that, anyway, and that's it was described as charming but aimless. And I am I the deadpan tug? Well, yes, because you yeah, said, yeah. well, you, they didn't say tu- they said that you were you were deadpan, but then they made a thing about alongside. Oh, that's right, a tug alongside. Is alongside. And you said a tug is alongside, and I said it's not a tug is in front of, and you said no, it's alongside. Then you were the person who described yourself as a, uh, as a deadpan tug. <laughs> it made perfect sense at the time. It did. Anyway, in that's the last podcast, so much of these Mark pointed out that many hymns have the tendency to add extra syllables. Yes. Well some of the as in And he sit down and lo, they were amazed. Confronted. No that as confronted is how you would say it, but it's amazed. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well done. You know, literally <laughs> of all the words you could have chosen, you chose one that, that doesn't work. Doesn't work for it. Amazing. At all. Incredible. <laughs> Inspirational work. So lo I was amazed. Well, some of this is <laughs> to do with prior pronunciation. This is more to do with how a lot of hymns were put together. Basically, liturgical folk wrote the words and nicked the tune from whatever was popular yeah, at the time. Yeah. Everyone was at it. Martin Luther was infamous for rewriting bar songs. <laughs> I just like the fact Martin Luther was infamous. He went to the bar, he nicked the song. He said, well, I, li- I like that spaceman came travelling. I'm going to nail my 39 theses to that. <laughs> Is it 39? How many it was 39. 39. 39. 39 articles. 39, articles. 39 and then articles. nailed them to the door. Nailed them to the door. While singing his face, <laughs> another lady in red type hits. <laughs> Been listening for five years, does that call Here's the thing. Did this come up last week? Why is Brian Blessed not Brian Blessed? Because he's from a hymn. I know, but it's, it's Brian Blessed. Brian Blessed. But why blessed? It's pointless. I know, but that's like, why is it Scarlett Johansson? Because she's... I- Decided to mispronounce her name, Lynn and Billy. Right to say uh, today, I have taken my three-year-old daughter to see Frozen Two. I was the only person in a full screening who laughed at the apparent "I'm sorry, I haven't a clue." Radio Four joke. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not sure this, oh, but anyway, and I haven't seen. It's when Frozen they're doing 2. when they're doing charades. Well, Olaf is looking for Sven or Samantha. Okay. And I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. The joke is that the scorer is either the wonderful, gorgeous, pouting. Samantha, blah, 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 you, or it's the hunky, fantastic Sven. Right. So it's either Sven or Samantha. So Lynn and Billy think that in Frozen 2, they're making a Radio 4 joke. So I don't know. This is, I'm not sure entirely whether this was intended, okay. says Lynn. Uh, I have searched the interweb. I can't find any link. Is I, it just me? I think it. I think if the, if the joke is there, it's accidental. Anyhow, the film was wonderful. Both small child regular cinema goer since the, since 3 months of age and I enjoyed it immensely it was beautifully drawn and a good, solid message, mm. and, said, uh, three, and said three-year-old had spent the last two hours pretending to shoot ice from her fingers and talking to imaginary snowmen. Which is a very good thing. I fully expect to be asked to see it again. and will be happy to oblige. Unintended jokes, there's a Woody Allen film where he goes on about Margaret Beckett. Oh, uh, right. And in the one interview that I did with Woody Allen, I said, did you know that she was the leader of the Labour Party for a while? And he, no, no. Well, I said, well, in this country, loads of laughs. <laughs>, loads, get, of laughs. loads of, laughs. <laughs>, loads of laughs. laughs. Loads of laughs. Loads of laughs. Loads of laughs. Actually, and there's another one which I'm not going to tell you about. Okay. But it does refer to a much talked about film which we are going to be discussing. Okay. And there is a, it's a jewellery joke. Okay. And it. Uh, mm. Is something, Uncut, have, something I've seen? Already. No, it's Uncut, Uncut Gems. Gems. Uncut Gems oh, is right. a jewellery joke which I need to alert you to. Okay. In Uncut Gems? Yes. Okay. Which we can discuss. Okay. At some stage in the future. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. Is Adam Sander brilliant in it? He is, he, he is, he is remarkable. Okay. Oscar nominatable, remarkable. Uh, I could. Yes, I. Yeah, yes. Okay, yes. Go Let's go with that. Okay, not really, not definitively ringing endorsement. but No, no. I'm. <laughs> ju- I'm, a- I'm just thinking. It's so you. You emerge from the film so exhausted yeah. that I think I need to see it again. I'm really looking. It's the Safdies, I'm really looking it forward is. to. And it. the Safdies are going to be. Uh, on this show. Oh, fantastic. That's so great. Have you, have you done it already? No, I haven't. Okay, wow. Okay, that I'm really looking forward oh, yeah. to. That will be an appointment. Why, to Why are you listen? looking forward to it so much? Because they're, they're really interesting filmmakers. I tell you, it has a it has a squawky, honking, 70s Electronica soundtrack. Brilliant. You're going to play all the time. Eternal Squawk Fest. One of those. Fantastic. Without any doubt at all. I love it already. Anyway, is there anything new that's Yes, around? there is loads of stuff new. So Charlie's Angels. Oh, this right. is the latest... Reboot incarnation of, you know, what was once a 70s TV series written and directed by Elizabeth Banks, who is, you know, a a real force for change in a male dominated Hollywood industry starring uh, Christian Stewart, uh, Ella Balinska, and Naomi Scott. So the plot um, concerns the theft of a new energy source, which is capable of being weaponized and therefore sold on the black market. So Rival Angels, originally Rival Angels, Sabina and Jay must team up with a new recruit, Elena, who was blown the whistle on her company because she was the person who designed the energy source and then realised that there was a potential glitch in it that could make it weaponized. And as a result of that, she suddenly finds herself on the receiving end of some very dangerous attention from on the one hand some very, very bad people and on the other hand from the Angels and they want her to come and join them in the fight against wickedness.
0: This is the closet of my dreams. And I just get to take whatever I want? Borrow. Huh. Is that an actual rule?
1: Okay, so you want to start with a protective base layer?
0: I recommend the fitted camisole. Yeah.
1: Huh, some
0: kind of polymer material.
1: Bulletproof composite body armor. It was originally developed
0: as a protective layer for spacecraft. Yeah, and it's a bra that doesn't dig progress. How are we doing down here? Ah, we're still in the first closet.
1: There's another closet. (laughs) Armoury open. Nice guitar. I know, that's one of those things in which, you know, the, the, the sound tells a thousand pictures, isn't it? So when you consider... The catastrophic results of the previous big screen incarnation of Charlie's Angels, which was those two McGee things, which were you know directed in this that kind of hyperventilating style that was McGee's own. As of course, we saw when Christian Bale later on had a meltdown when they were making Terminator Salvation. And you think about how fundamentally, you know, cheesy and ropey the original TV series was. I think that this version of Charlie's Angels is really much better than anybody had the right to expect. And I should say from the beginning that although there are certain things, it's frothy and it makes no sense, but it doesn't matter because I really, really enjoyed it. And the reason I enjoyed it is twofold. Firstly, it does a proper update. So in this new world, the Angels are an international organisation, Bosley, Bosley, Bosley. Is now that's him. I remember Bosley. Yeah, exactly. Bosley. Everyone remembers Bosley. Bosley is now a code name given to a rank within the Angels' organization. Okay, nice. So, in this particular version, Elizabeth Banks is Bosley. Okay. So it is the name that is used, which I think is kind of that's that, that's rather well done, and she plays that role with the Grand Degree of Chutzpah and the plot is fairly standard fare that you know this upsetting the scene is a new technical thing it could be weaponized somebody's looking to buy it on the black market somebody's in danger now what must happen is that the angels must go through a series of james bond like adventures in order to you know stop the bad thing happening with the bad guys and this will involve some action set pieces it will involve some undercover work there's a scene in which they have to go to a party and infiltrate the party so lots of glitz lots of glam and there's also bubbling along in the background, a kind of double-crossing uh, thread uh, that, you know, you're you not entirely sure whose side everyone's on, and, you know, there's lots of sort of nice red herrings, and, you know, Patrick Stewart at the beginning stands down, because he's, uh, he's been with the organisation for a long time, and he stands down, there's a question about, has he been pushed out of the organisation, you know, or just, did he just want to retire anyway? So, what I what I liked was that all the coordinates are fairly sort of straightforward, but what Elizabeth Banks manages to do with it is these kind of nice neat not too clumsy subversions. So all the way through the story, our uh, heroines use the traits of sort of dumb male chauvinism to their advantage. There's a lot of stuff about the fact that um it takes a man a certain amount of time longer to suspect that a woman is a spy. Then I mean, because he just is just assuming that she's somehow lesser than him. And there's a lot of conversations that are done like that, and they're done very tongue in cheek, and they're done very archly, but they're also kind of making a point. Um, also, the action sequences are nicely done, and the you know the set pieces are nicely done. But what matters is the sort of sparky interaction between the leads, who have got a very good line in kind of deadpan, droll, um, slightly snippy. Uh, conversation and of course, this is not, you know not surprising when you consider that Elizabeth Banks has got a great uh, history in that kind of quite dry, quite droll uh, comedy, and Kristen Stewart is very funny. And in the past, she hasn't that often been given terrifically funny roles. I remember the first time you interviewed it was around the sort of time of Twilight, and there was a whole thing. People were kind of complaining about her being some sort of notoriously straight faced but she demonstrates her real comic chops here. So. Obviously, Charlie's Angels is a sort of meringue-like confection. But what I really liked about this was it is, in a in a quiet, um, odd little way, it is quietly subversive because it's a big, fun, frothy, spectacle you know, action movie that in all these little ways makes a little change. Like there's one moment when they're in Istanbul, and in order to get something that they need, they have to donate an entire van load of of stuff to uh, somebody who's, who's running a, a woman's shelter. And it's, it didn't make a huge big deal of it, but that happened. And all the way through, our heroines are smart, and the, but they constantly use the fact that people think they're not against them, which actually, of course, was one of the things that was un, uh, written into the original TV series. So it dispels the memory of those first two uh, big-screen adaptations, which I thought were just terrible and it's it is funny, and it is you know disposable frothy fun, but good entertaining disposable frothy fun made by people who's who are just you know managing to slip some subversion in there amidst the froth. I had a poster of Charlie's Angels on my wall. I think many people did. Did they? Yeah. It was a, it was a big. It was Fire majors. Jacqueline Smith and Kate Jackson. Kate Jackson. That's right. She was my favourite. Was she was the really was she the brains? Because they all had kind of. Like one of them was very was very athletic or sporty. I, I can't quite remember how it worked, but I remember. No, I can't remember either. Okay, well, but it, it was all it was all jolly good fun. But well, I'm glad yeah. they kind of so we can fe- Yeah, we can I, forget I think about McGee and we can just forget about McGee. Yeah, Elizabeth Banks and she. I think she's. I think she's done really. Is she good any work? relation to Jane and Michael Banks? Almost certainly. On exactly. the on the evidence of this, I would say yes. So it's a meringue which is frothy when it needs to be frothy, but it has a little bit of heft in the filling exactly would that so work? that would work exactly you can put that in your paper yeah. yeah. i enjoyed it i, I honestly I, I i laughed and i smiled all the way through excellent new uh out is charlie's angels what else have we got Atlantics. um this is uh featured by matthew job who's a french senegalese filmmaker who made history at the Cannes film festival she's an actor she's in claire Denis' uh, 35 shots of rum and she made a doc in 2009 atlantique i think is the original title about two friends from Senegal making the, you know, the very dangerous crossing by boat to Europe. And now that idea is revisited here in a fictional film, which has got a kind of social realist authenticity of a documentary, but also has this magical realist fantasia element that it interweaves really cleverly to the point that at certain moments in the, in, in the film, it almost shares the iconography of a horror film or a, mixed with a kind of heartbreaking melodrama romance and yet it always seems to have its feet on the floor so the screenplay is by Diop and Olivier de starts with uh, workers in Dakar on this huge great big tower that's being built that looks out over the ocean they haven't been paid for weeks and one of them is Solomon who is in love with uh, Ada she's Ada is engaged to Omar who is rich and rather creepy and both Ada and Suleiman both need to kind of escape from, uh, you know, from the, the the strictures of their lives, their impoverished lives, and they both have a potential way out. For her, it's marriage to this guy that she doesn't like. For him, it's getting in a boat and leaving on the trip to, Europe, to trip to Europe, which he does one night completely unannounced. There is a brilliantly understated scene in which she discovers that they've gone to see in a boat that the men have gone. And none of them know anything about, uh, you know, know your boat through this very, very dangerous because So suddenly he's gone and they don't know what's happened to him. So what has happened to him and what will happen to her then becomes the sort of central subject of the film. And what follows is really remarkable because... You remember I reviewed that film by Apachapon Weerasethakul called um, Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives? I do remember that title. Okay. And I said at the time, there's a there's a there's a a scene in that film in which something is happening which is completely domestic, and a supernatural element appears in the film, but it's to- treated with total normality, as if it's just literally part of of the everyday drama of the film. And this has a similar sense to it. It's beautifully lensed by Claire Mathon or Mathon M A T H O N, and it's really mesmerizing and it's telling a story which is really kind of i say grounded in you know in the re- realism of its subject matter but it's managing to do it in this way which blends elements of the supernatural with the absolutely everyday and you never question it you never i mean i've seen a couple of quite trite descriptions of the film which totally miss that the point of it is that the magical real the magical element is completely intertwined with the realism it's not a fantastical story it's a real story it just happens to have a slightly transcendent uh, subject to it anyway uh, Matiop became the first woman of african heritage to have a film in competition in Cannes, and um she won the grand prix and there was a quote before the competition when she said my first reaction when i found this out was quite sad i thought oh am i So there's still a very long way to go before it becomes something completely natural and normal and something that's not noticeable. The fact that I am a black woman and after the success of the film, it was snapped up by Netflix. And I suspect that most people will see it on Netflix, but it is a really remarkable film from a number of reasons. Firstly, because the tone of it I think so beautifully melds the natural, the supernatural, the eerie, the down to earth, but also because, It is astonishing that it's taken so long for this kind of recognition to come. And you realize that things are changing very, very slowly, but they are starting to change. And it is called? It's called, over here, it's called Atlantics. Okay. So, now, uh, we're here for uh, a while. A while. And, and we have knives out still to come. Yes, we do. But, uh, and I've got some Last Christmas correspondence. I'm going to Great. hold on to that because it's, okay. a, you know, it's a treasure. Okay. We also have our TV movie of the week. Yeah. And also So Bad It's Bad. However, I'm quite looking forward to two the, popes. Next, the, the two popes. So, the last I've seen song. the pictures and I like the pictures. Yeah. Do you remember when Jonathan Price was on? I do. And he talked about this. I, we said, what are you doing now? He said, I'm making this film in which I'm, I play the Pope. Because people, many people had pointed out that he looks, or look, look you know, a physical resemblance, yes. a, papal, a papal shadow. No, that doesn't sound right, does it? He, he looked like the Pope. Um, so, uh, this is directed by Fernando Moraes, stars John the Price and Sir Anthony Hopkins. And it's essentially about the resignation of Benedict and in 2013, and succession by again, Pope Francis. And the fact that this was an historic event, because popes serve until they die, mm-hmm. what they don't do is renounce, which is what was happening.
0: Why do the presidents of America and, and Russia and China come to you? Because, unlike them, your authority comes from the fact that you will suffer and die in the job. A martyr to justice and truth. For this, all people come. Forgive me, but... But? Christ did not come down from the cross. Ah, God always grants it the right words. No, no, no. A pope must go on forever, be the personification of the crucified Christ. If you do this, you will damage the papacy forever. Well, what damage will I do if I
1: remain? I love it, I know, and the sound of ham being sliced but but very fine ham yes, I thought that was fantastic, I know they 've got great voices, yeah, they have, and I have to say that part of the pleasure of the movie is exactly I mean the look on your face when you 're listening to that clip, if I could bottle that oh jonathan price 's voice, I love it well yes, Jonathan Price has got one of them, but so has Sir Anthony Hopkins when he 's doing something that he actually cares about. Mm-hmm. So the screenplays by Andrew McCarton, whose credits include Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour and Bohemian Rhapsody. He's pretty good then. Yeah, he has some form in the area of taking historical events and, you know, in the same way that P- Peter Morgan does. And, of course, so Peter Morgan was the other credit on Bohemian Rhapsody, wasn't he? So it's inspired by a certain degree of invention. I mean, the historical facts of, you know, what happened with the papacy are historical facts, but the conversations between these two characters are assumed and in some cases completely fictionalised. So we start with Jonathan Price's Bologlio, um, now Pope, trying to book an air ticket on the phone. And he, they, he says, you know, the, the, he says his name. And they say, oh, like the Pope. And he says, yeah, like the Pope. And they say, what's the address? He says, Vatican City. And they hang up.
0: <laughs> yeah, so
1: well, you would. Exactly. But the point is because he's a pope, but he's trying to book his own air ticket. We then go back to 2005. Um, Cardinal Bogoglio and uh, Anthony Hopkins Ratzinger, um, both in contention for being the new pope, which, of course, is uh, Ratzinger then becomes uh, Benedict. And he is described as God's Rottweiler. He is the person who is defending the old traditions of the Vatican, meanwhile Boroglio goes back to you know tending to his flock and working with the poor and they are so essentially they're set up as completely different one of them is a a reformer somebody who who believes in the church being connected to you know to its roots to the to the poor to the needy to the oppressed another one who is absolutely about tradition and you know the, the red leather shoes and the spectacle and so they're they're absolutely chalk and cheese and then at one point he is called to an audience with the Pope who says, I hear you, you, you want to resign. He says, well, you know, I, I want to retire. He says, you can't because if you retire, it will be seen as a criticism of me because you're very high profile and people like you and that thing about God always tells you what does. You always have the right thing to say. So there's a tension, you cannot retire because if you do, it will make me look bad. And it then moves on forward to a later discussion in which he has decided to renounce. And now what he wants to do is he's, he says, there's says a lo- lovely line about, you know, I've listened so long for God's voice and I never thought I never thought that it would be be, I'd hear it through you. So essentially what you have is this series of imagined conversations between these two characters, these two chalk and cheese characters. And this is this is like a perfect setup for a theatrical thing in which they're discussing theology. They're discussing politics. They're discussing their life. There is the drawing of a veil of silence over certain accusations about uh, Ratzinger but i have to say that my own feeling was that that there is literally a moment in which he starts to say something and the sound then goes down so you don't hear it and what i liked about it was it allows the audience to fill in what they what the audience may already know or what the audience may want to fill in but also in order for the drama to work both characters have to be burdened by guilt both characters have to have the thing that they can't personally get over and what the what the 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 what the drama does is to create in both of them a belief that they are not fit for the job to some extent. And then there's a playfulness about it. There's a discussion about pizza being the the best food you could possibly have. There's a lot of drinking of Orange Fanta. There's a thing about um watching a television show called Commissar Rex about this hero dog. And I, I, there's a piece in the American magazine by Joseph McCauley which goes through the film. You know, did this what what happened and what didn't happen. It's quite interesting about they didn't have this meeting. They may have met at some other time, this, that and the other. But it says this, I should quote him directly. um, On the subject of, is it true that uh, Benedict did indeed love a television programme called Commissar Rex about a a talking dog? He said, I suspect that the insertion of this supposed papal favourite of Benedict was something of a tongue-in-cheek allusion. Get this, a show about a German shepherd being watched by a german shepherd very good and i thought okay i don't think for one minute that's why it's there but that is a really smart piece of writing and i take my hat off to you sir for that um there's some very light-hearted stuff about him having once being asked to record in abbey road which he didn't then do and then uh ratzinger Benedict, yeah um, ratzinger because okay. he's, a, he's a, a pianist and uh, and uh you know, uh, but but he says but what you didn't go. You know, he says the Beatles, the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby. But says who's Eleanor Rigby? Which, of course, actually is quite a complicated joke because Eleanor Rigby is the whole thing about Father Mackenzie doing the sermon to the church, which has been oh, abandoned boy. by everybody. Because, so yes, it's true that it's you know it's it's not something that's delving deep into the actual history of the church, which has been riven by crisis, and particularly the Catholic church has been riven by crisis in the past. Decade or so, but as a character piece with two actors at the top of their form, I imagine looked at the script and went, "Yep, absolutely. I'm doing this because it's me and him sitting in a room, doing theological, political discussion in a way which is often very funny. I mean, it's very, very cuddly, very, very cuddly. You and I, and I smile. Is that is that part?" Might that be, I haven't seen. Might that be a problem? Might that be a criticism? Because yes, it is. Yeah. the people who would be very critical of Ratzinger yeah. and his church would say he was the one thing he wasn't was it's cuddly. cuddly. No, exactly. And what that's why I say what the what the film does is it sets up him as this, as you said, the the Rottweiler thing, and we all know about the you know all the uh, all the controversies surrounding him. I mean, he's referred to regularly by by people as the Nazi, hmm. although it's never kind of ex- explained exactly why and the Hitler Youth thing and everything. But um, there is a moment in which he he says, I, "I need to confess," and the and we don't hear the confession, but we know that something is confessed. Is that an odd, is that an odd cinema? I cinema actually thought, device to weird. actually here comes a crucial bit. What's he going to say? And and it's faded out. Weirdly enough, uh, and I know some people do think that. I actually thought that device worked quite well because I thought that that if you if you actually went where that looked like it was going to go the whole thing would the whole thing would overturn almost for the reason that you're saying it would be a different film it would be a completely different film because it's not crucially it's not that film i mean i think that's it it's not that film and i absolutely understand that certainly and we've seen documentaries recently in which there is much to be appalled and outraged by this isn't that film this is this is a film in which to, in the end you know Uh, avuncular theologians, one of whom is progressive, the other whom is retrograde, weirdly meet in the middle and find some common ground. I'm intrigued. And of the two, would it be right to say that Pope Francis is more likely to have heard of Christa Burke? (laughs) (laughs) On balance. It is, yes. Uh, What have we got still to come? Uh, The Nightingale, which is the new movie by Jennifer Kent, who made The Babadook, and Knives Out, which is the movie which everyone's talking about. Okay, all on the way. And we're back. Here we are—the one of the world's top seven film shows here playing in your because ears. That really underplays the majesty of what happened. One of the world's top seven film shows. That the, has, okay, as, and that as, is like the kind of—and now the best film released on a Wednesday in the middle of. Okay, area. I'll try it again. Welcome back to what the, the New, New York, York Times, Times has said is one of the best, best film f- shows ever. All right it's, you know can I just ask why is it that both you and I know will will this wind is that so mighty the, 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 low? But, but does everybody know that no they absolutely don't it's it's it was one of the amnesty gigs there is such secret policemen such ball. a weird thing there are little bits of art because you have never said that before but there are things, I don't think there so. are th- no but there are things Peter that, cook and I know, no 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 but there are things that you and I know off by heart that has to be because of our age and cultural disposition. Mm-hmm. I think so. If uh, And if you are, you know, you can look it up. But basically, Peter Cook is off on one of his splendid monologues, then interrupted by a behooded... Behooded. Because he's part of a crazy cult who yeah. wants to know whether the With wind... wind will be, be so mighty, so mighty as, be as to lay low the, the mountains of the earth. Ah. <laughs> to which the answer is no, no, which is a bit of a spoiler. Yeah. Um, TV movie of the week. The best films on subscription free television, which we post in the week on our assorted socials. Jill McGlashen, if I remember li- rightly, and lightly, Last Action Hero was rollicking fun with Schwarzenegger proving that he could laugh at his own movie persona along with the rest. Best of line them. in Last Action Hero, to be or not to be. <clears throat> not to be. Matt lines. I think Perks of Being a Wallflower is better than I gave it credit for, as it reminded me how pretentious and obnoxious I was as a teenager <laughs> and filled me with self-loathing. I'd go for Mad Max, Fury Road, one of the most distinctive films of the last decade. Only seen it on the big screen, so looking forward to seeing how it holds up on the TV. I love that film. Yeah. Richard Dolan was... Do put- you see the black and white version? I didn't know there was a black and white. Yeah, it was because originally he wanted it to be black and white. Really? And so yeah, this is, so there is a version. In fact, it was, it was released in theaters briefly, in cinemas briefly. I reviewed it on this show. Don't worry. No, I, no, I'm not. I'm just you know, Charlie's Thron back on this show very, very soon. Charlie's Thron." Richard Dolan I think one of my favorite moments of the year was when Seth Rogen. He said, I've been pronouncing your name wrong all this time <laughs> because I—that's how I introduced her. <laughs> Richard Dolan was pleasantly surprised at just how good Perks of Being a Wallflower was. The the reveal was disconcerting as well as being disturbing. The film has, because of that ending, unexpectedly stayed in the memory, not because it was noisy or showy, but because it was well considered and crafted. Claire Anderson, please anything but Mad Max: colon Fury Road. It gave me a headache on my first viewing, from which I have yet to recover. Give me a headache. John LeGroux, El, is it you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. El Dorado, surely, a more comedic remake of Rio Bravo, but huge fun with some good performances all round. Even Wayne shows vulnerability. And Richard Stacey... John, but- Wayne, John Wayne does show vulnerability in, a, in quite a few films. There is an assumption that John Wayne only ever played one character, and that's, that's not... it's neither true nor fair. Bunny Lake is missing, says Richard Stacy. deliciously creepy psychological thriller entirely stolen by a wonderful cameo from noel coward what is our tv movie of the week well you know i am going to go for um the perks of being a wallflower because i don't think we've chosen it as a tv film before and i, I know that we had that long discussion about how can you possibly be those kids and not have heard heroes and the point is that in the original in the novel it's not heroes it's uh, it's what is it? Congratulations by Cliff Richards. No, we, discu- we, f- we found this out. And now, now my memory fails me because I'm old and foolish. But um, anyway, I'm going to go for Walk. That was it. It was Black lace. the birdie dance. <laughs> it pa- was the birdie dance by? Paper. No, was it? no, it wasn't paper lace. That was Billy Don't Be a Hero. Billy Don't Black Be a Hero, lace. The Night Chicago Black- Died, and The Black Eyed Boys. Nottingham's Finest. <laughs> were they? That's where they were from, yeah. Black Lace. Black Lace. <laughs> Where were we? Not to be confused with Paper Lace. <laughs> on Penny Farthing Records? <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> what anyway, what's our movie? hang on, who was on Penny Farthing Records? Blackley. Uh, Pe- um... <laughs> paper, paper Lace. No, they weren't. They were on Target Records. No, that was... Alvin Stardust. No, Alvin Stardust was on... Magnet Records. Magnet Records. Okay. Anyway, I think they were on Penny Farthing, but I'm happy to yeah. be... Correct. Honestly, now will this wind is looking like a an all-inclusive <laughs> very modern you can eat modern buffet anyway where were we movie yeah. of the week yeah uh, so uh, tv tv movie of the week is uh, we i'm going for the perks of being a wolf When's hour, that which on? is a quarter past 11 on sunday on film four excellent uh, tv movie of the week so bad it's bad um Phil Smith, The Sweeney, is legitimately one of the worst excuses for a film I've ever had the misfortune to stumble across. It is literally anti-cinema in its utter, utter failing at every aspect of the art form. Nobody in it involved has ever been worse. The script seems to have been <laughs> created by picking words at random from a bag. And the only scene that comes close to not being completely unwatchable was made with the help of the Top Gear team. It's utter garbage from start to finish It would make a compelling argument for banning all cinema just to ensure nothing like it ever happens again. Thanks. David Dunn. I'm fairly sure that Ted 2, Sweeney 2 and Dumb and Dumber 2 have been up before, so I'd vote for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, not just because it's teeth-achingly bad, but also because the movie actually seems like a gag that the characters in Ted 2 and D&D 2 might have come up with. Teresa Richards, I love Pride and Prejudice and I love a zombie film. Who knew that when you smashed the two together, it would be a shocking mess? Yeah. Mr Darcy has a voice like someone gargling razor blades and it's just dreadful. I've never made it to the end. Peter Burks, the Sweeney was slightly redeemed by a fine performance from Ben Drew, I thought. I seem to be alone in having enjoyed Pride, Prejudice, Zombies. Perhaps I was just in a silly mood at the time. Dumb and Dumber 2. Do we say Dumb and Dumber 2? Because no, it's... no, because the, the, the gag is that it's 2, but it is Dumb and Dumber 2, but it's too, okay. 2, you know. Could only have worked if they'd brought in two new actors. They didn't, so it didn't. Charles Henry, it has to be Dumb and Dumber 2. The original is one of my favourite comedies with such fantastic lines and genuinely likeable pair in Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. The sequel was a painful disappointment. I pretty much erased it from memory. Such a shame. Uh, And final word, Ryan Gray, dumb and dumber, managed to ruin my childhood, even though it came out when I was 33. (laughs) What is our TV movie of the week, So Bad It's Bad? I am going to go for uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I would just like to read you the last line of my review, which I've just looked up and I'm quite proud of. The result lacks bite, the one element that zombies and Austin should have in common. Hey, hey. hey, hey. And astute listeners will have noticed that, indeed, our bird song this week has come from the Eider Duck. Oh Exactly, as featured on last week's programme. Uh, so we've got uh, some big movies still to talk about. Yes. Uh, so uh, let's do The Nightingale. This is uh, the latest movie from Jennifer Kent, who, of course, pretty much changed the face of modern horror, uh, modern popular horror, with The Babadook, which I think is just a terrific movie. And I think we both agreed that it was a, a really important thing. We've had so much correspondence about it that's actually that's one of the ways you can tell whether a film has really found its mark is whether you, you keep getting emails about it over the years and we have done this is altogether more down to earth and more brutal um a tale of colonialism in the british penal colony of what was then called van diemen's land now tasmania set so in 1825 uh, ashton franciosi is uh, the irish convict claire And she served her sentence, but this British lieutenant played by Sam Claflin, second movie of the week because he's in uh, Charlie's Angels and could not be more different, um, has no intention of letting her go. And as a result of his intention not to let her go, he effectively steals everything she has from her. So she then is set off on a mission of retribution in which she teams up with a tracker called Billy, who becomes her guide, uh, Billy Mangala, uh, played by Bekali Ganambar, on this cross-country mission of vengeance. Please, it's broken. Not broken. It just got wet when you threw it in the river. Where did you get that? Stole it from the hut where well, that did one shot me. What? I'm smart. You white ones go fast, fast, fast. Get nowhere. I go slow. Get everything done. I'm Blackbird. Just fix it. We need to get going. Now, what then happens is they're on this kind of this mission of vengeance. But the crucially, the point is that they have both suffered the very, very harshest end of war. Uh, colonial oppression whether it's um you know uh british colonialism or male oppression or racism and at the beginning of the film there is a really really tough opening in which uh we see sexual assault happen in multiple occasions and apparently when the film first played at uh some film festivals there were walkouts at that point point. Now, I have to say, having forewarned forearmed, and, uh, and I think the opening of the film is very, very tough, but it should be said that it is filmed uh, by Jennifer Kent in a way which very specifically, and I think very cleverly, avoids any form of visual exploitation or titillation or anything. I mean, it is they are horrible scenes and they are meant to be horrible, but what they are not is visually graphic. Most of the horror is to do with the acting, the performances, the fact that you that you see what's happening through the perspective of the victim. Um, that said, the opening is tough. There is no getting around it. It basically sets up what's then going to happen, and it's really, really gruelling. They then, these two characters, uh, set off uh, on this mission and the film has got this its you know kind of boxy frame. You were talking about the framing of uh, the lighthouse. It's the which lighthouse, which is four, apparently Academy Ratio. Four by three. And what the film does is it sees them on this trail in which they encounter hardship and difficulty, but during the course of their journey they form, uh, they begin to form an unlikely bond, an unlikely friendship. And that's the most important thing, is that in the end, the film, which incidentally was made in collaboration with Tasmanian Aboriginal elders, is about a friendship forged in the darkest of times. Also, softening the harsher edges of the drama is the use of music, because the nightingale is the term that is used to describe our heroine who sings and has this beautiful singing voice which kind of haunts the narrative. But there are key moments in the film in which song happens as part of the drama. And as a result of that, it lets something into the drama, which then this kind of refers back somewhat to Atlantics, which implies a kind of a slightly mystical slightly high, supernatural hypernatural element so it's not just this kind of trudging story of oppression and uh, and retribution it becomes something different so having had the thing at the beginning of it in which i thought this is very very tough going this is this is very hard Actually, the, what the film did was it won me over. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jennifer Kent anyway, and I, I, I think what she's doing is telling a story which deserves to have those harsh edges. But um, more importantly, it starts to involve you in emotional ways and it starts to become more than just a kind of story of you know, down-to-earth, realistic, gritty depiction of a very, very dark time. And so I think it's impressive. I think it's going to have a, a limited audience because I think that the, certainly the toughness of the beginning um, is, is going to be an obstacle for some people. But I do think that the, its depiction of the, uh, of the horrors of its story is done in a way that very specifically avoids uh, the kind of visual exploitation that we've become so used to in cinema. And I think that for that alone, it is to be applauded. So, I mean, we, amongst the other things, which yes, I like. And about it's it. called? It's called The Nightingale. Okay. And presumably an 18th certificate. Uh, yes, oh, I okay. would imagine so. So, uh, we have one more uh, movie to discuss, and it's taken quite a few posters, take a few, it's even on buses. Yeah. So, Knives Out, which is a sort of, I'll say, I, mean, it's, I think it's a terrific modern day Agatha Christie style whodunit from Ryan Johnson. Um, all-star cast gathered together in this gothic-like house where the finger of suspicion following a death points everywhere and nowhere. A famous crime writer has, has gathered together his family for an 85th birthday, and he spectacularly capped off the evening by dying dramatically in his attic study-cum-bedroom. It looks like an open-and-shut case of suicide. However... 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 Each one, each member of the family may have some hidden. So, is it a suicide or did somebody else actually do the throat slitting? Know. Certainly, the presence of gentleman sleuth Benoit Blanc suggests that at least one person here thinks that foul play is afoot.
0: Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in
1: the New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85 year old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer
0: of the truth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now you're already sold, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going for this one. Okay, so all-star cast: Jamie Lee Curtis, Daniel Craig. As you heard, the Daniel Craig just apparently Enjoying himself. Apparently, the first time they heard the accent, the the he, the rest of the cast went <gasps> because he's like, okay, he's really committing to that accent, and he is going to do that all the way through the film. Uh, Anandearmas, Don Johnson, the Keith Stanfield, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, Chris Evans. I mean, the proper there's an, there is an Orient Express. Everyone wants a cast. To be in it. And everyone everyone may have a motive. I mean, it's a suicide, and there's no question that it's a suicide. But, you know, the son who's publishing Empire depends on the good favour of uh-huh. his father, and maybe he's fallen out of that favour. The daughter-in-law, who may have her hand in the till in some way. The son-in-law, who has a roving eye and a secret. All, all of them... May be sneakily lying, except for um, the, Anne Damas' character, who is Marta, who is the nursing carer, who we know is telling the truth. Because in one of the film's most brilliant uh, uh, setups, she is told by Daniel Craig, he said, I hear you have a regurgitative reaction to mistruthin', which means that she can't lie because she vomits. And this, so it's literally a Excellent. plot point that there is a character in the film who cannot lie because doing so makes her vomit so you've got this spectacular cast all of whom i mean what's interesting is the film doesn't look like it was filmed in bits they did use a a real house i mean it's brilliantly set designed and everything but there was a large section in which they had that incredible ensemble cast together in the same place for a large period of time and for a on the one hand, you know I sometimes use that thing, which is that the amount that somebody enjoys making a film is often inversely proportional to how much you enjoy watching it. Well, in this case, there's none of that. Like I was saying before with The Two Popes, you can see every member of the cast going, yeah, sign me up. I'm absolutely... This is my. These are my lines. I get to say these lines because, firstly, there are more laugh-out-loud, quotable one-liners in this film than in most of the year's alleged comedies. And it's not a comedy. Oh, is it not? No, I mean... It must be. Well... It is a, No, it's not. That's the interesting thing. It is a very, very funny drama. And in the same way as the, you know, the Poirots that we've seen in the past, which are kind of almost like kind of variety shows, it has a lot of humour in it. But it works because at the heart of it is a murder mystery. Or is it? I mean, is there a murder mystery? The whole point I don't is. Know. It, well, he did. Well, I'm it's telling there. you, I don't know. I don't want to spoil the film oh, for I you. See. But the whole thing is. But surely it's a suicide. But no, if it was a suicide, what is Benoit Blanc doing here with the regurgitative vomiting? Moment? Isn't a humorous drama with Benoit Blanc and regurgitative? Uh, that's a comedy. Okay. The reason it's not a comedy as such is is because. I would say that it is first and foremost a really brilliantly constructed whodunit, and here's why. The best whodunits are films in which the answer is there, but you don't see it, okay? okay? The worst "Who whodunits is a film in which a whole bunch of stuff happens, or a story, a book, in which a whole bunch of stuff happens, and then at the end, a character who no one had ever heard of before said, oh, but it was Jeff from Down the Road, you go, really? When, when did you know, Kaiser Soze come on? You know, it's, it's like, when did that happen? It's like that thing in Murder by Death about, you know, it, the whole thing about all these detectives is all nonsense. You brought some character in when, or, oh, it turns out it's him in disguise. That person didn't really happen to the thing. He's only just delivered the pizza. Having seen Knives Out twice now, and I loved it the first time, second time, loved it more. Wow. Because in the first 10 minutes of Knives Out, once you've seen it, you go, oh, that's re- that's that is so clever. That is so precision. It's like what, you know, I know this isn't a cliche, but it's the Swiss watch thing, okay? It's the finely sprung steel trap that is put together so perfectly that the second time round it all makes sense. And the second time round you go, how did I not see that? Who, who did the screenplay? Ryan Johnson. Oh, it's his. And um wow, what a genius. And so what I So first and foremost, it's a whodunit, okay? Beyond that, it's a who-done it with really, really funny things in it, like really funny lines. At one point, he's called, uh, because of his southern accent, he's called CSIKFC, which I laughed about for about five five minutes. But none of it would work if you didn't actually believe in or care about the characters. And there is a scene early on in which, you know, which you heard there from Jamie Lee Curtis, in which she says, I would just like to remind you that my father who committed suicide on his 85th. So Jamie Lee Curtis is kind of like the lightning rod conductor in the middle of the film, who reminds us that it's not just a comedy. It is also something else, and that's why it works. It's really well designed, really well written, really well directed, really well played, and the reason it's funny is because the jokes happen around this central rod of a really well-done coiled spring metal, you know, steel trap of a plot. You know what this is? Go on. This is the film that was come out this festive season, which we're about to enter, which you can, by the sound of it, yes. you can say to your parents, come, shall, we, come see. Shall, shall we go to the movies? To the, yes. And your folks will go, yes, yes, I will. Yes, we shall. And you won't sit there going, Oh, no, I didn't think there'd be the Blumond scene. I know. And all that. No, no, no. There's no nipples of Venus in this. Excellent. Phil in Sheffield. Phil House. Dear Colonel Mustard and the Lead Pipe, no plot twists in my review. I had an absolute blast. Whodunnits are a genre that we rarely see on the big screen, barring the relatively recent murder on the Orient Express, of which I can remember Chuckles Branagh's ludicrous moustache and nothing else. So it was great to see Johnson's story that managed to feel both classical within the genre, but with modern twists at the same time. The star studied ensemble cast all shine, particularly. The wonderful Anna de Armas. Yes, who's great. Who provides the emotional core to the film. Daniel Craig, whose Benoit Blanc reminded me more of a Mississippi inspector calls than a Poirot, manages. I shall be a passive observer of the truth managing to bring legal and moral judgment onto each of the Throm—is it Thromby fam- family. family and the events around Harlan's demise. Oddly enough, I found myself thinking about Jordan Peele's Get Out a lot on my way home. Another highly entertaining... Well, not least because of Lakeith Stanfield, but yeah, absolutely. genre film packed full of references and details that managed to examine class and race within 21st century America, particularly a specific type of racism among- amongst people who project a superficial liberalism. A film that could draw in both my Captain America Or bond-loving friends, and also my Dick Francis-loving grandma. Also worth saying on that subject about the supposed liberalism is one of the. I mean, you know, Christie's plots, Agatha Christie's plots, always involved an element of social satire. They were to do with the, the, the strata of the societies that they were depicting, and that runs right through this. So there is. You know, there is a whole thing about she keeps being told, you're one of the family, Marta, who the, is the, the nurse and carer, you're one of the family, but she evidently isn't. And there is one brilliant, there's a fantastic moment in which Don Johnson is holding forth on something and Because they're talking about uh, immigration. And he's mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, Marta is a great example because, you know, she came in the right way and she's demonstrated that, you know, if you do it the right way, that the, the American can be your... And as he does it, even without noticing, he passes her a cup that he's finished with and just expects her to take it off. So, and it's a, it's a tiny little gesture, but it's really well done. Shirley Bond, dear Blanc and Blanc de Blanc. Very good. Uh, normally a cast... A wow is the first one. Wow. Normally, when a cast is clearly having this much fun, the audience is not in on the exactly. joke. Exactly. However, this is not so with *Knives Out*. Uh, it is clear from the very beginning that Ryan's love for 19s. It was Ryan Johnson's yeah. love for 1970s Christie adaptations shines through every scene. The whole ensemble cast are excellent, but a special call out must go to Daniel Craig's Southern detective, mm-hmm. Anna de Armas. Is it Armas? Is that Armas? Anna de Armas. Anna de Armas. I, that, they're right? They're right. They're uh, they're I that, yeah. Uh, who shines as Blanc's Watson? And Noah Segan, who as the starstruck And he actually refers to her as Watson as his kind of, okay. his kind of pet name thing. He was the starstruck state trooper, steals every scene that she that he is in. It is not often that I leave a cinema dreaming of more adventures to come with our Southern detective. Easily one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, just one more before we're done. I have another film to do if I if I if I have oh. a moment. Oh. No, no, carry on. You go you you carry on. We could we 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 can fine, okay. Uh you go. go. Okay. There you go. Hugh Farley, County Dublin. Uh, Dear Hercule and Agatha, I caught knives out at my local Dunleary Cinema. Uh, and while it made for entertaining evening, I couldn't help feeling that the film is like ordering a deconstructed rhubarb crumble in a trendy restaurant that, while not untasty, is a little too pleased with itself and leaves one wistful that real rhubarb crumble would taste much better. Yeah, no. Don't agree with that. Can I very quickly do this? The Street, which is a documentary by Zed Nelson, who's a London-based photographer, it studies the changes in Hoxton Street over a period of years, with the EU referendum right in the middle. It begins with the announcement of the referendum by Cameron, it ends in the aftermath of the Leave vote, and it starts out looking like a sort of fairly well-researched portrait of gentrification. We speak to people who've lived on the street for years, we speak to the people that run the pie and mass shop, we see galleries taking over where pubs used to be, we see uh, people, very, very middle class, very, very rich people moving in and pushing out the population but as the documentary moves on it becomes about much more than that it becomes about how people's ideas about what a place is changes and also the fact that it happens around the referendum then becomes oddly enough an unexpected critique of the referendum itself it's a very fine piece of work brilliant use of rachel portman's music from life is sweet and it's called the street Wow, that was super swift. So well done, Mark. By well done the way. me. Well done you. Well done us. Uh this has been a something else production for BBC Radio Five Live. Mark, what is your film of the week? Take a wild guess. Knives Out. That's the money. Uh we'll be back next week at three with Oscar winning documentary maker Alex Gibney. The podcast with all the extras will be available shortly from BBC Sounds. Thank you very much for listening. It's a pleasure, Simon. Oh so sorry, it's a pleasure, Simon. Sense. Thank you very much. Well, a fine show, but really all the way through I've been looking forward to hearing uh, a little bit of Temple Tudor, courtesy of the great rock and roll So all song. the time that I was doing those reviews, all you were thinking of... Hey, uh, make a, hmm. And if you think this is like... Birds of the air, beef strong enough. Exactly. This is what our inspiration was. <laughs> <laughs> It's not English. Air, be strong enough. (laughs) Overjoyed at Bambi's birth, they gambled in the glade. Chorus Who killed Bambi? Who killed Bambi? Who killed Bambi? Who killed Bambi? Enough. Who killed Bambi? It's rubbish. I mean, it was really, really rubbish. Yeah. I found it It was fun at the time. Anyway. So it's <coughs> birds of the air, beasts of the earth. Beasts of the earth. <laughs> will this wind... Will, will this wind... Be so be mighty... so mighty... As, as, to, as to lay low, low... The mountains of, of the earth. earth. No, it won't be that mighty. It won't, no, it won't. Uh, DVD of the, <laughs> of the week. And another Topical Gag. <laughs> Hey Mark. Hey Simon. Off brands, eh? Well, you want, you know what off brands are? Go on. Unbelievable! This is not butter on your toast. <laughs> or okay. how about a refreshing cup of Popsy <laughs> before you put on your? Are these real things? Yeah. Mikey trainers. <laughs> and do you need to borrow my Snorsug phone charger? <laughs> There you go. Once you've (laughs) pipped, you can't stip. And if you're in need of a fancy dress costume, how about a cape for Happy Chappy and the Cheeky Grin? (laughs) That's uh, Benjamin Stittleglass and the Cauldron of Well, this week we have an off-brand DVD. Yes, it's not the Lego movie, but it is the Playmobil Playmobil movie. movie, Might have done better if they called it the Logo movie, we'll never know. Let's hear what the crew think is worth forking out for. Jonathan Lay. Anna in the Apocalypse is great fun. A Christmas com with songs all achieved on a low budget, but with charm. And energy to spare. Paul Forrest says, I would love to hear Mark choose Anna in the Apocalypse, Zombies, and Musicals. Got to be right up his street, though I did work on it, so I'm a bit biased. I was first assistant camera pickups, second assistant camera, B camera. Elena Fernandez Hilario. For the oldie, I have to go with Operation Petticoat. Brings fond memories from my childhood. For the new release, I think The Good Doctor might go with Angry Birds Movie 2. An unexpected surprise. Rob Guew you I'd go for Arctic a taut visceral survival movie which seems Mads Mikkelsen carry every second of screen time with complete believability and Neil Peter says Hobson and Shaw and Princess Margaret was enjoy- enjoyably stupid so should be the new release choice Easy Rider for the re-release what's our DVD of the week well You know, I was going to go for Hobson Shaw because I did enjoy it. But actually, you know, we didn't really give any attention to Anna and the Apocalypse. And it is really good fun. So Anna and the Apocalypse is the new uh, movie. Uh And of the re-releases, I'm going to go for Ironweed. Because I haven't seen Ironweed in a very long time. But the scene in Ironweed in which Meryl Streep does the song and then the film snaps out. Uh Ironweed was the film in which she method acted being dead. Right. The director said that she got onto the set before everybody else, she lay down on the floor, and her body temperature went down, and then they came in and filmed around her, and then everybody left, and then she came out. He said, method acting being dead. Extraordinary. Really extraordinary. What an inspirational moment. I'm really really to conclude this week's podcast. I'm going to go home and sleep for the weekend. What are you going to be doing? I'm going to go home and listen to the double soundtrack album of... The great rock and roll swindle. If your train allows you to. Yeah. Oh, heaven's sake. Thank you so much for taking part. We'll be back shortly after this short break.
0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
1: Yo, I'm George the Poet. They told me to tell you that I won five British podcast awards. Um, But don't watch that. I got a buzzer. Don't know what it does. But if you don't make it back, just subscribe to Have You Heard George's podcast on BBC Sounds. Let's try out this buzzer quickly. Mm. Reaganomics made the projects a place where holics wasted profits. Wait, wait, you lot remember Reaganomics, right? America's business plan for the 1980s, which reinvigorated American morale and drove communities like these crazy.
0: Remember Blacks...
1: Have you heard George's podcast? Listen now on BBC Sounds.